Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. I'm Lucas. And I'm Grant. And if you are joining us for the first time on this first episode of the year, welcome. We hope you like what you hear. Leave a like, subscribe, leave a review, let us know how we're doing. And if you want to get on the conversation with other good music appreciators, check out our Instagram and Facebook page at Good Music Podcast. There's information on episodes coming out and things like that. And if you really love good music, or if you really love bad music and you want to listen to us completely roast some of the artists that we talk about, down in the description of every episode, there's a link to a Patreon page. You'll want to check that out if you want early access to episodes and exclusive access to our Bad Music Podcast. And you can support the podcast and let us know that you appreciate what we're doing. And we love all of our patrons. Thank you, guys. And I'm not going to spend too much time on the introduction and everything because we have a pretty big episode. So our last volume two, um, which is actually a volume three, we did on Queen, right? So every month at the beginning of the month, we like to talk about an artist that we have talked about previously. We call that a volume two, do a deeper dive into a particular area of them. And on the first of the year, we're starting it with a band that me and Lucas both have a very great affinity for and it's one of my favorite bands of all times uh all times wow all of the times and it's dream theater yes <laughs> hey everybody uh, welcome to 2022 uh this is going to be the best at the podcast ever and we're, we're this whole month is going to be a pretty fun interesting month but yeah, we're gonna just we're gonna start off with something huge, something big and meaty, and just all around fascinating. We're gonna be talking about Dream Theater, and specifically, we're gonna be talking about the epics. So it's we're not just talking about Dream Theater. We're gonna be getting into some of the songs in the uh, the world of rock and metal. This is Even the first, longest longest set we've had. Yes, which is funny because a little a little uh, sneak peek for uh, next week. We have our sh- I think our set. Wow! <laughs> oh my! I didn't intend for that, but it was something that after the fact I realized. Just like we're gonna in a row have our longest ever song list and our shortest ever song list. Yeah. So. I think I think that's a good way to to sum up the beginning of this year. So, uh, so Dream Theater. We've done an episode on them before. That is one of, one of my favorite episodes we've ever done. Mainly because yeah. Grant, you pretty much knew nothing about about them going into it. No. And then at by the end of it, you were just like, okay, this is a band that become obsessed with. Right. And right. You, and I you did. 
I remember we had um, when we were recording that episode, we had band practice like between the second and third segments. And so we talked about like all the songs and then you explained the meaning of Octavarium and like the entire band rehearsal. I was just like running through all the lyrics in my mind over and over again. And it was just like, it was such a weird, it was such a weird episode, but I loved it so much. And I did get obsessed with them after that episode. Like, um, I know in preparation for that episode, I listened through all of Images and Words because just listening to those six songs, not even talking about them, I already was like, oh my gosh, this music is fantastic. I have no idea what these words mean. I don't know what is happening like thematically or anything. I don't even really know who's in the band other than John. I guess we're I guess we're in I guess we're in first thought. I guess we are in first thoughts, yeah. So I'll just this is my first thought, guys. I'll continue with my first thought. That was the preface. I hope you're interested in the rest of it. Um and yeah, and and after that episode I listened through um Octavarium. That whole album is is great. I remember you were like, oh, Octavarium, the songs aren't as strong as like their other albums. But, you know, the end, it's really good. I actually kind of, I disagree. I like all the songs. I like all the songs of Octavarium. Um, and Black Clouds and Silver Linings has become like a staple of my listening repertoire. I've listened to that one probably more than any of their other ones. Um, Scenes from Memory, that's kind of an obvious one. That's the real big one, I guess. And then at the end of the, the 2020 um uh, end of year review or whatever it was and i looked on my listening stats and four of my top five songs are dream theater songs my number one band of the year was dream theater i'm like okay maybe i need to listen through everything they've ever done and then i did and i discovered a couple of the songs that we're going to talk about today and i'm like oh my gosh this is like fantastic and i remember you were talking about the cover that they did of of um oh funeral for a friend uh, whoa friend funeral for a friend love lies bleeding that's a great that's just a great cover and i mean there's so much in their discography that you can just get obsessed with and they have their sound through the entirety of their discography and they're like every album has a little bit of a different flavor to it and they kind of go through ebbs and flows and whatever but it's still distinctly them and the lore involved in their music is just so great and the amount of fun that i had covering that song and and picking apart the individual pieces and and when we covered as i am which is on our youtube channel if that's even still something that people <laughs> watch uh, I start doing that again someday maybe yeah maybe we should and um that's that's my favorite of the covers that we did i put so much like work into that because i just loved the the bare bones song it was just like it was prime for me to just get obsessed with this band and they have gotten to the point where they are i mean if it weren't for rush they would be my favorite band Rush was the first band I got obsessed with, so they kind of like hold a very special place in my heart, you know. But when I discovered Dream Theater, it changed the way that I looked about looked at music entirely. It changed the way that I write music. It changed the way that I listen to every other band. The the way that they're able to craft, and it's especially good that we're doing an epics 
um, episode because the way that they craft the their song structure is so cinematic, theatrical, operatic, and yet real. I don't know. It's so weird. It's so weird. So I hope that somebody else who is on the edge uh, during that episode had the same experience and you're returning with a little bit more zeal for them. Um, so anyway, that's my first thought. Okay. Um, would you say that there are 10 for you? Yeah, there are 10. At this point. There okay. <laughs> easy 10, yes. All right. Well, um, I per- I have always loved Dream Theater. I discovered them to rock band. <laughs> Man, that was such an interesting way to experience it, too, because I I, I knew of their reputation, particularly already being a drummer for several years, I knew the name Mike Portnoy. And I knew that he is one of the all-time greats. But I'd never heard anything by them. And Panic Attack was on Rock Band 2. And I played through that game on drums. And I remember getting the end of the game. One of the last ones in the game was this Dream Theater. Oh, man. Okay. I guess I'm going to have to... uh, my partner like, guy is all about and so i start immediately yeah. i heard that bass line and i thought to myself oh crap this is gonna be ridiculous mm. and sure enough, as soon as it, i was just like oh i i failed instantly and i had to work <laughs> at that i had to work at that song for a while but that was instantly where i was just like okay i found my next drummer for me that, that i got a uh start leveling up to meet. So after that, I, Octavarium was the first uh, because I already had the relationship with Panic Attack. And once I heard Octavarium, especially the song, I was just like, oh, this is going to be my rush. Yeah. So then after that, uh, I remember right about Black Clouds and Silver Linings came out. And so that was like the new record. I was just like, oh, the, you know, the new Dream Theater album is out. I'm going to I'm gonna check it out. And, then, and I went back and got a... Kind of like the two... It was like systematic. Those were like the main albums I got into first. Then I went backwards, found Images and Words, and uh, Awakening. See, from memory, was one of the last ones becoming my favorite mm. and so fifth for that fifth spot because my my top four are very solidified and it's like the number five is uh kind of i never can make up my that fifth one's gonna be but dream theater is one of the runners to to fill that spot so much so that I think I could say that it's that there are about a ten. I would say that few bands have influenced me more, and they're just a band that no matter how much time goes on, I I can I find new, new things, things each time, and that's always exciting. Yeah, that is. And so, I mean, I'm so obsessed with them, and I already know I'm going to learn so much more during this episode. 
yeah my appreciation probably cannot get higher but my level of knowledge will always go up yeah so yeah we're going to be talking about the epics i i kind of struggled a little bit or did epics one or did i want to do a one mm-hmm. where okay let's look at uh, images and words awake and fall into infinity because I was like, an epics would be really fun, but also that's a really daunting task because <laughs> epics is kind of changes depending. Yeah, when we did Led Zeppelin epics, oh. if a song gets past like the seven to eight minute mark, that can be epic for them. Mm-hmm. Um, even Rush, the the stray song that reaches into the seventeen eighteen. Most rush epic should be like nine to ten minutes. With Dream Theater, like their average song length is like between ten to thirteen. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And so it's when you you know you start getting to songs that are past the fifteen minute mark. That's when you're like, okay, this is song for them. And then, you know, they've got a fairly decent amount of songs that get into the 19 to 20 minute range. We, they even have uh, a song that is 40. Yeah, then we, we and, get to talk about it. <laughs> we're going to talk about it. So yeah. that was that was the thing when I was just like, if we're going to go, we got to go hard. We can't just, you know, we can't uh, go light on this. And I didn't choose all songs being that length just because is that's ridiculous so there are a couple songs that like dream theater fans that's you know a medium song for them like we've got one 10 minutes mm-hmm. long mm-hmm. but for them they've got so many songs that set but i just i was just like you know we need something that's a little less going on here to just catch our breath a little bit Mm-hmm. But we've got three songs on this set that push the twenty-minute mark. Mm, yeah, well, some of them push it a lot. Yeah, some of them push it a lot. And like, there's plenty of more epics that they have that aren't even represented here. Oh no! Um, I mean, one of the first episodes was Octavarium. That's twenty-four. Right. We've got we've got their second biggest one, which is in the presence of enemies. I both of the parts, which I do. Uh, so that's six. Wow. And um, yeah, we needed uh, songs like A Nightmare to Remember or The Ministry of Lost Souls. You know, our push mark. So, but the 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 big ones we have here are some pretty. Oh, we even have the new record and be for the top which oh, that, yeah. is, I think that was like 21 or 22 yeah you can't forget the uh, 12 step suite yeah you that? no just because those are from different albums and they were not constructed in one sitting mm. like in the presence of enemies was constructed as one song and it was meant to be a big epic and Mike Portnoy got frustrated and he was just like, this would be an incredible opener, but it would also be the perfect closer. Where do we put it on the record? 
And he was just like, oh, and then put the part one at the beginning and part two at the end. So it wasn't it wasn't written to be two different parts. It was just it was something they did uh, after the fact. Mm. So I do count that as one song. Same thing with uh, Six Degrees of Inner Turbulence. That was originally constructed as a unbroken 42 minute song. But uh, Mike got people wouldn't uh, accept the record with having a 42 minute song on it and also didn't make fans that were just like, Oh no, this is way too much. So he divided it into eight tracks. But if you listen to it, there's no there's one continuous piece. I think it kind of like, and we'll, we'll get to it later. Cause you know, spoiler alert is one of our songs, but splitting it up like that allows it to be more palatable. So I guess it ended up becoming a good, a good thing. Cause if you look, a 30 minute song and it's got all these different parts like our first song it's like subdivided into different sections like you can't really tell what part is what and what music goes with what title and what instrumental section goes with what lyrics you know and so dividing it up like that really like yeah it kind of helps so anyway it's just every song is different um, like there are some of their epics that are very just dark and like <laughs> there is no happiness here. Like Nightmare to Remember. It's just like that's just there's people die. Like that's just not happy. But you know, then you listen to no, some but... of the songs that we have. It was a mirror they lived, it was a died. By the grace of God above. Oh my gosh, you're survived. right. I forgot about that. I forgot about that. <laughs> Yeah, oh my gosh. Um, but it's still like, it's it's still dark, you know? But then, yeah, it you is. know, you have something like The Count of Tuscany where it's like, tell oh, them about, about my brother, or tell them about me, you know? Where it's like, and those are on the same album. And those are I forgot that one. that one. That one goes like 19 minutes. Yeah, and that's that's like one of my favorite ones. There's some great like instrumentals in both those songs. But the structure is completely different. Like, the philosophy is different. I mean, obviously, you're going to fall into some of the kind of the same tropes where it's like, oh, let's do a cool intro section. Let's establish the lyrical theme and then do some musical exploration. But the way that they do that, and they don't always fit to that, but the way that they do that is always new. It's always different. It's always something that you're just like, huh, I never thought about using, you know, a keyboard or a guitar like that it's not mind-bendingly like we're pouring gasoline on the instruments and then lighting them on fire and then recording that type of mind-bending but it's it's just it's just different it's new it's fresh every time and i love it Inherent uh difficulty that comes when uh, when you're writing a song like this is that the key is you have to make all every minute enjoyable yeah and the last is for people to be checking the time to see how much is left because mm. the great thing about six is that you don't because it's so yeah. engaging and it leads way the yeah. minute is a sense mm -hmm. that um 
you know, there's there's songs by artists that are only three minutes long. You feel like it's gone on forever. Yep. Bad music and, podcast. Yes. <laughs> and so um, that's how easy it is, even with a short song, to stay welcome. And if you're going to write pushing into the 20 minute range man you have got to you cannot be wasting or filling space and that's a thing that in songs I really can't think of a single song of theirs that is guilty of this of just trying to pad the time Mm -hmm. and it's because that at their core these are the songs that naturally spring from them They've Mm -hmm. said that whenever they go in to write an album, they don't intend to go, okay, let's write a 20-minute song. Mm -hmm. They say that that's just what happens. And it's Mm -hmm. usually whatever is the longest song on the album, that's typically the one that they write first. Like they've said that the record systematic chaos in the presence of enemies was the first thing that came out of their group writing. Um, When they did... uh, when they did um, uh, Falling Into Infinity, uh, Trial of Tears was the first thing that kind of came out of that session. Mm. Um, and so on and so forth. Like Black Clouds and Silver Linings, I think uh, kind of Tuscany and Nightmare Remember were the first two things that were written for that record. Wow. That's just what naturally happened. They they're not going. Ooh, okay. If we let's add some more of this here, so we can get to this time length. Mm-hmm. It's it it's very natural for them to uh, songs to end up the way they do, and so because of that, any reason go well. Let's just let's let's redo this part here. Let's stretch this part out a little longer, so we can make this longer. There's never that feeling. Everything is for a purpose. Everything has a reason. Uh, there's nothing thrown in there for the sake of lengthening. Right. And and more on that, everything has a reason. It also has a reason sometimes thematically. I mean, yeah. you have like a, like a musical theme that will be introduced just for, you know, three or four seconds, and then it'll come back later in this huge recapitulation. And they always leave you with... And, you know, there's a few exceptions. Maybe we can get into that argument. But 99% of the time, they're going to leave you after that 20 minutes with a really great ending where you're just like, yes, that song was complete. And it took you Mm -hmm. on the journey and you're at your destination and you've learned something about the meaning of life or, I don't know, climbing mountains or something. So, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) So it's not a waste of time, the 20 yeah. minutes. You get um, more than 20 minutes worth of content, really. <laughs> let's let's talk about the personnel of who is going to be playing on the songs that we're going to be talking about. Right, right. Because uh, we do have personnel change for one of these songs. Right. So for five out of out the... I guess what you call the classic lineup. And, and that in, is uh, John Petrucci on John Myung on bass, James Lebrie on vocals, Mike Portnoy on drums, and Jordan Rudis on keyboard. 
So Scenes from Memory was Jordan's first album as keyboard player, and he's been with them ever since that period. He doesn't play on Change of Seasons, does he? No, no, no. So then we do have someone else on Change of Seasons. Ah, okay. Um, <laughs> this will be the first song to be able to who played on technically two albums, but really only this is an EP. So the only two things that uh, that Derek played on was Change of Seasons and the album Falling into Infinity. Mm. Those were those were his yeah as a keyboard player. Those were his sole contributions. Now during he was with them, I believe for like uh, three or four years total. And during probably moment in the band's career. Mm. Um, you know, they still have a great relationship with Derek. He has uh, rejoined them on stage several times. Um, he has played on several of their uh, solo records. In fact, I think he plays on John Petrucci's first solo album. And he's done, he's continued to do stuff. And so he's still got a good relationship with them. He just wasn't the right guy for Dream Theater. Mm-hmm. Original keyboard player Kevin Moore is the greatest keyboard player, but I mean I don't think you can deny that Jordan is the is for them. Yeah, it's just everything feels so natural with him there, and he's a he's a technical like all star. So he's learning guitar now, and like it's only been a few months or something. And he's already way better than me. And, I mean, it doesn't help, you know, that I don't have John Petrucci as my personal guitar instructor. Uh, and also, yeah. he's just like, the thing, like, imagine the carryover from keyboard, because he is so technically good at keyboard that you're just left wondering how is it humanly possible. And he's controlling his sound with one hand and playing with the other and all over the keyboard. It's just like, what in the world? It's just mind blowing that's the stuff that i'm that i'm meaning where it's just mind bending type of instrumentals where it's like how is a keyboardist able to do that yeah. i mean so. as far as sheer sheer technique and sheer ability there mm -hmm. are few people on this earth that are better than jordan yeah. there will be now there will be the people that will argue whether or not he has as much soul or as much taste mm -hmm. Well, and that's usually the main thing that people will contend about. Is it him or Kevin Moore, the great dream theater keyboard player? Mm -hmm. um, and there, there is a certain magic to the way Kevin played that mm -hmm. I never be recaptured. All the keyboard stuff on and Awake yeah. is just good. He has the ability to go insane when he wants to, but he also knew how to like, he was such a great yeah, and particularly his stuff in Awake is, I think, some of the best keyboard playing on record. In a lot of ways, that's his album. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but one can deny Jordan. I think that even if you prefer Kevin to deny that Jordan is one of the most technically gifted piano players living on this earth today is. You can't, you can't refute.
I mean, uh, there, there is some there is some weight to the argument that Jordan Rudess doesn't have quote unquote soul or a good tone smithing ability, which I talked about in our first episode. He kind of does keep to his same um, antics, if you will. Now, if you like that, then it's fantastic, and I I happen to like it. And I will posit some. <laughs> To it. I would say lately, yes. But his first couple records with Dream Theater, I would say particularly Scenes for a Memory in Six Degrees. Mm, that's, true. that's where you're going to see, I would say that's where you see Jordan at his best. It's when he was at his most total. Um, I think that, I think Train of Thought was kind of when he settled into the the classic Rudess sound. And But you listen to a on his first two records with them and it's wild and it's stuff that he never really did again i think those are reasons why those are two of my favorite albums of theirs is because it's the overall as a band it's when they were their most daring their most fearless and their most experimental six degrees i would say is still the weirdest album that they ever made but i yes. would say that i would say that it's probably a close second as far as their best one to scenes you you had mentioned it's like they're proggiest. It really is. Wow. I mean, it's so weird. <laughs> obviously, Images and Words uh, also stands up there with their greatest of all time. Mm. Um, I would say that's your top three is Scenes, Six Degrees, and Images. Just images the, the, sheer, the sheer songwriting on Images and Words is just amazing. And then... Oh is that magic lightning in a bottle great uh you know marriage of story song playing like it has literally everything but then six degrees kind of sneaks in as like that dark horse record no yeah. one really talks about it that much songs on it have become like big iconic classic dream theater songs yet not a single week song i would say not even a single week moment on that whole record it's so risky. It's so experimental. Uh, it's just, I think, it's their boldest artistic statement. And I would say that everything that they tried worked. Well, so anyway, uh, we've, we've gotten but, through one personnel position and we started ranting. Yeah, I know. This is what's going to happen whenever we, uh, <laughs> whenever we talk about Dream. Yeah. Uh, the, the second is uh, we have a change of drummers for one of our songs. So in 2010, Mike Portnoy my heart and left the band. I, rem I remember driving home from senior in high school driving home and my also the Dream Theater fan called me and said, dude, Mike Portnoy left Dream Theater. I was like, no. There's no way. There's he's the guy that they can't get rid of. It's like, dude, it's all over the internet. He's, he's out of the band. And I got home and I saw that it was true. And I kept like trying to find something. Like, oh, this is unconfirmed. And I was just like, no. It's true. I was, I thought that dream theater was done. Even though they were, I was just like, no, you can't replace him. He wasn't just the drummer. He was the head creative force behind the band. Mm -hmm. I was just, no, no way. way. And then I watched uh, 
as it came out, their little YouTube series about how they auditioned. Have you ever watched that before? I have not. No. I would recommend. I would. I would recommend finding it where they're where they're holding auditions to figure out who uh, the new drummer is and the that they audition. The very first. And one. he's the one. Yeah, he's the first one. Wow. And I think. Because they, they didn't just let anyone come in. Like, you had to get a special invitation from the band. Mm-hmm. But, uh, like, eight or nine people come in to audition, and, and Mike was... But you have the greatest drummers of all time. Like, like talking about, I was just like, man, I would love to be in this band. Guys, is like you don't have to prove anything. You're among the greatest drummers right now. And mm-hmm. I knew who Mike Mangini was before this all happened. Some special on a channel where they were like looking at the science of drumming, and he at that time was the current world record holder for fastest hands. He could play over a thousand beats. Oh my. And had the record for being for the single-handed speed hand and the double hand speed, and he had the pick world record. I don't know if those are records he still holds, but at the time he was the world record holder. So I I knew going in, I was when I found out Mike Mangini was going to be on this, I was just like, oh shit. Shoot. That would be insane. And then when I saw at the end of the three-part series that they picked him, I was just like, "Well, gosh darn! Well, they didn't get didn't just get some you know nobody to come in and literally got the man with the fastest hands and feet alive." Did they even audition anybody and, else? Yeah, they did. Like oh. I said, he was like he was the first of like eight or nine people. And it, it, I remember it came down to him and Markham Miniman, who is, I mean, if they also had picked him, that would have been a worthy successor. But, uh, yeah, I was, I waited in, in, with that, for that next record, uh, a dramatic change of events, or a dramatic turn of events. And I remember not liking it when it first came out because my bias of, you know, nobody can play these songs except Portnoy. Uh, my judgment. Now looking back, it's actually become one of my favorite dream theater records. There's so many great songs on it. So how did that like creative process change? Because I know that like John Petrucci was a big factor in writing and and stuff yeah i mean it was a pretty equal split as far as writing least lyrics between uh mike and john now his real invaluable contribution was was that he was like an arranger when they would write parts, Mike was the one that was very much stepping into the situation going, you need to put this riff here. Hey, let's double that riff. Uh, can you play that a bit of a different way? Like, he was kind of like the 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 mad scientist, taking all these ingredients that the other people were doing and, like, 
figuring out how to put the song together. Mm. And I believe the biggest thing that they lost when Mike Portnoy left is that after he left, that's when the songs started to get a bit unnecessarily complicated and a bit so over arranged that they're a bit under makes any sense at all but sometimes the big weakness with modern dream theater aka the last 10 years is that Mm. the arrangement sometimes gets a bit because it's it's going being so crazy and so and what things that my partner was always so good about is uh, is bringing it back down and just going, okay, hold on. This is this is getting too weird. This is getting too wild. The people are not going to follow this. He would be the one that's go. Let's just put a solid drum beat right here. Let's let's maybe declutter this a little bit. Now, against complexity is absurd because you know you've got you still got stuff like the dance of eternity and yeah. wow and all these other songs that had these really crazy parts but at the same time there was there it felt overwhelming mm-hmm. there's when you're listening to some of the more recent dream theater stuff and you're just like it kind of makes your head hurt a little bit trying to figure out what's happening that is it's true. impressive it sounds good but it it's it's way less comprehensible it's astonishing how incomprehensible it is sometimes oh well good (laughs) i feel like i don't know would you if you had to guess would you think portnoy would have been big on the whole idea of the astonishing i think he would have because the whole idea of doing uh scenes from memory he was he was very much behind. He was the one that convinced the band when they were on the ropes and saying like, "You better give us a hit record, or we're going to drop you from our label." But he was just like, "Dude, let's do a freaking concept record and just shove it up their butts." Hmm. So he he'd have been all in. I that record is the most like classic Dream Theater than any of the other ones. That uh, astonishing a lot of nineties uh, era dream theater. Hmm. Interesting now, take. I didn't expect you to say that. As far as like the way the melodies are really coming through, that it's not just about metal, 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 time signature, time signature, time signature. It's it's more song oriented and melody and and singability, which is something mm-hmm. that 90s Dream Theater really um, leaned on. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that I think that Mike could have helped edit it a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think that he would have probably helped it be a bit more focused and direct. Mm-hmm. Probably would not have let it become a double album. <laughs> But yeah. I don't think it's something that he would have opposed to just go, no, we're not going to do the Astonishing. That sucks. Like, I don't think that that's what he would have done. Hmm. So, okay. all that to say, we're going to have a song on He is Behind the Kit. And right. uh, it's, even though 
I would say the recent era is not as good as the earlier, the early and the mid era. They still have made some incredible music with Mangini. I am, I am not a Mangini hater. Do I prefer Portnoy? Absolutely. A big reason I prefer him is because he is connected to first. Mm-hmm. But I will never deny that Mangini is uh, an incredible drummer, that he deserves the accolade that he has, that he is a worthy member of the band, and that he has helped them make some incredible music. I just personally prefer Mike Moore. You're, you're talking as if this is a great controversy. Oh, it is. It's the biggest thing, one of the biggest things that divides the Dream Theater fan base currently. There are so many people that will not be happy until Mike Portnoy is back in the band, which, I mean, if there was ever a time it was going to happen, it would probably because he has mended every relationship in the band except for James. Mm-hmm. It's, it's because that James is the main thing that's blocking, as well as, you know, regardless of how they now feel, again, about Portnoy, I don't kick Mangini to the curb unless Mangini willingly steps aside. Mm -hmm. That's just not not fair. Yeah. To the new guy. Because from everything that we know, Mangini gets along great with them. There's no conflict of personality. There's nothing that would justify them getting rid of him. Yeah. And so I couldn't, even if Portnoy really was just begging them and they wanted him, I don't think that they would ever just go, oh, sorry, Mangini, you're out. The only way that Portnoy would come back is if Mangini was just like, hey, I don't want to be in the band anymore. So, I didn't realize that Portnoy had to mend relationships with anybody except for Labrie, because wasn't he the reason that he left? Uh, yeah, but he kind of, there were other things that got in the way of his relationship with the band as a whole. Um, Mm -hmm. The fact that in the middle of touring with Dream Theater, he decided to go do an album and a tour with when the Rev passed away. Oh. And that was a that was a big thing. And whenever uh whenever Portnoy left the band initially, that was the people looked to blame was they said it's Avenged Sevenfold. They they stole away Portnoy and made it to where he was too tired to do more things with Dream Theater. Because the way the whole story goes is that Portnoy said that he was burnt out on Dream Theater that he felt like he was out of that, and that he wanted the band to take a five-year hiatus. Now, Portnoy has, himself has come back and said that the whole five years thing is not true, that that's just a, an assumption that people have made. But he said that for a couple of years at least, he wanted Dream Theater to kind of go inactive, you know, give them opportunity to work on other projects, kind of, you know, do something that was not part of that grind. Mm-hmm. And then to come for a set number of years and be refreshed, 
invigorated and that that would also probably be good for the band's uh, uh, morale and uh, performance as well. That's smart. But Dan was not on board with that. But Mike <laughs> was saying, like, guys, like, I have to do this. And the way that it's presented is that um, – that they called his bluff like he was kind of he kind of put himself like in a well they'll never get rid of me i'll just say well if you don't do this i'll i'm out of here not realizing that they would go okay (laughs) i think the thing the thing that that rubbed the rest of the band wrong was that he was trying to the band in a direction that they all did not that win as far as this schedule and that they were looking at Portnoy saying like should have uh, concentrated more on Dream Theater and not be constantly doing all these different side projects no wonder you're exhausted you're not taking the time that we all normally have off to rest you're going off and doing these other things and of course you're going to come back to Dream Theater exhausted tired and creatively spent mm-hmm and let's listen to the song Constant Motion. We talked about that. That's the way that Mike lives, is that he is in constant motion. He can't figure out a way to shut off that creative part of his brain. It's the reason why he was in charge of so many things in his day-to-day processes. He, was, uh, he wasn't just the drummer. He, like I said, he was a big arranger. He was a producer. Um, he was in charge of all of the art, like the visual art of the band, the album mm-hmm. covers, everything to do with stage and and production element. He was setless every night, and he made sure that every night was a different setless. Hmm, wow. Um, he was in, he was in like, like, like releases and. He did all of the promoting. Like usually if a new Dream Theater record came out, Mike's the guy that's going to go out and do all the interviews, do all the radio shows. He was in charge of the fan club. He was pretty much the guy that was the most artist fan relations. And like he did so much, much. Wow. Kind of like constant motion in a way was a bit of prophecy into his own his own crash. Yeah. Was are any of those functions taken up by other members of the band or is it just Um, I mean John I would say has done the most as far as definitely uh the the promoting and the the fans and the kind of being come becoming the most visible member of the band mm-hmm. and and James Labrie has kind of also stepped up more into that space. John Perchucci has now become where he mm-hmm. was a bit more content to just kind of the guitar geek side of the fandom. Mm-hmm. Where like the spokesperson for like the the audience in general, he yeah. was 
like if you're getting into dream theater he was kind of like the person that you would gravitate towards first he was the big and now I mean, that is, the, that is much more stepped into that role that is the thing about Petrucci. He's a he's a big guitar nerd too, which is I guess why I always considered him being the face of the band. I didn't really pay very much attention to Portnoy until I started, you know, seeing his name and hearing his name places as like oh some of the greatest drummers of all time. I'm like, hey, he's from Dream Theater. That makes sense. There's some pretty intricate drumming there. Ooh, listen to this guitar solo, you know. So, I don't know. Back back when I was listening to like the two or three songs that would come on my, you know, uh, YouTube autoplay. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I didn't really, and I didn't really get properly introduced like um, two years ago now. Huh? So, but yeah, no, that that's that's good, I guess. And it would be kind of weird for Mangini to be that guy as well. He's, yeah, he's the quote-unquote new guy. He's been there for ten years though, so it's not like he's that new. I know it's 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 crazy how time has gone by. So, anyway, the other three members are constant. Yeah, um, I mean, both of the John founding members. I mean, mm-hmm. the Dream Theater was founded by uh, Petrucci, Myung, and Portnoy when they all met at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And we're just like, hey, let's start a band together. Um, James Labrie has almost been on everything. He did not sing on their very first record, uh, which was When Day and Night. Not even uh, on Spotify. Well, no. Well, I mean, in a way, yes, because they just released the uh, the Lost Not Forgotten. It's It's a live version of when day and dreamy night but for the first time now we do have in at least some way those songs on spotify uh, or on streaming periods but maybe man have that record on vinyl Ooh. so i can listen to it in its original version ho, 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 ho. <laughs> yeah uh, so charlie dominici was the singer on that first record and uh, James Labrie came came in for Images and Words, which is the the kind of the proper Dream Theater debut record. Because the, the, it's the it's the uh, it's the Dream Theater sound. Yeah, and it was uh, they were on an independent record. Uh, Images and Words was their first release on a major record. It's the mm-hmm. the main reason that first record has never been officially put out on anything in recent years has become label disputes who has the rights to that and hmm. it's something that they've been fighting for a very long time are there any like live staples from that record because i don't know of any uh, songs is something that i find comes up fairly frequently it's an instrumental mm-hmm. and it's really good i would say it's the best song on the album uh, after afterlife is something that I see popping up time and time again on set lists. Uh, particularly, there's a great version of it on uh, on score, which is when they were touring for Octavarium and they did a special show in New York with a full orchestra, and they did a song. 
but I've seen Afterlife mm-hmm. being played uh, on d- multiple different concert CDs since then. Mm-hmm. Um, Fortune and Lies is something that will find its way back again, but then a lot of stuff besides that, uh, not not very often. Jam, Fortune and Lies, and Afterlife are kind of three that'll find its way into Dream Theater sets from time to time. I like how we uh, mentioned Myung in passing. He's like the overlooked one, which is quite He bad. is the quiet. He is the quiet. He's the quiet one. But, I mean, he is just as talented as the rest of them. He can play bass about as good as Petrucci can play the guitar. It's crazy. I would say that probably the, if there was one person could put a stamp and say, I am the greatest in the world at what I do, I would say that there's probably not a greater bass player out there in the world than me. Yeah. <laughs> he, he has it's the, just, it's, he has the weirdest. It's absolutely thing. stupid what he can do. Yeah. And he has, he has the weirdest social media presence. Is he just, like, makes dream theater memes that are, like, pointed at the band as if he's, like, a third-party observer? It's really <laughs> funny. It's just... And he'll, like, make memes about himself. And it's just... I don't even know. I, <laughs> like, he's a funny guy. Uh, but he's it's so, like, weird that all their personalities are so different. I mean, you got the nerds with Rudess and Petrucci, but you have like the big personalities as well with like per- Portnoy and Labrie, and then Myung is just sitting in the corner playing his bass. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and well, together they just all, you know, and Mangini and Kevin and you know Dustin, you know, if you want to extend to the entire Dream Theater, I guess family. Dustin. Dustin, what's his name? Sorry, Derek. Derek, why? Where did I come up with Dustin? Maybe I got Justin somewhere. Maybe Jordan, Justin, Derek. I don't know. My bad. I'm sorry, Derek. Your work on images and words was phenomenal. Anyway, if you're going to extend to the whole Dream Theater family, they're they all together are just like a bunch of weird personalities that come together, and that kind of comes through the music. The music is weird, but it comes together into a nice, a nice set of themes and lyrical ideas and recapitulations and after 20 minutes you feel like your entire life has changed yes so i think with that yes we can go ahead and take a break for this part when we come back we're gonna get into the six epics and i do mean epics in every sense of the word um that we have picked for this episode so stay tuned we will be right back When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Welcome back, everyone, to the Good Music Podcast, where we are talking about a great band, Dream Theater, talking all about their personnel and plenty of other ranting last episode. Me suddenly deciding that there's a band member named Dustin. Um, and now it's time to talk about the six songs, which look like 13 songs, which we will talk about um, in this episode. And if you want to listen to these songs, which you probably should, I mean, it's two hours worth of music, so you're kind of be, you know, going to be a little lost uh, if you don't listen to that. Down in the description of every single episode, there's a link to a Spotify playlist with every song from every single episode, past, present, and future. You can find these songs, and if you find another song that you like, we have an episode where we talk about it, so be sure to check that out as well. And... I don't really have a good pun to get into this one. I really should have thought about it, but this is just a great song. We're going to start it off with a nice banger of a song. A, a classic. A classic. Yes. So this is our this is our Kevin Kevin on the keyboard song. No, this is our Derek song. This is our Derek. Derek Kevin the... Kevin's not going to be in this episode. You know, I I am not doing well on the keyboard <laughs> personnel tonight. I'm just gonna. We have an interesting keyboard part on this song. Wow, we have a lot of interesting parts of this song. So this song yeah. has a very, very particular story to it. Yes, it does. So this uh, was written by Mike Portnoy. I want to say it was the first song that he wrote for the band, but wow. I, I don't, I don't know completely if that's accurate. Uh, I, in fact, while I'm talking about this, I can fact check it. Um, <laughs> I do know that it was, uh, I do know it was kind of the first major uh, song that he wrote. Is their longest so he, song at the time? Yes, it was. It was their first time uh, that they did not, uh, or first time that they cracked that 20 minute mark and did like a sign along epic mm-hmm. which I, it, I, guess, I guess it contributed to the fact that it's the only studio song on the record uh yes yeah. so the way that this was originally conceived was it was supposed to be on images and words it was written at the same time as all of those other songs mm. and it uh, it was going to be on its own disc like it was supposed to be a double album and that being their debut and still being a relatively unknown band uh, they were like well uh, let's let's maybe not have a giant 20 minute song on your major label debut and so the so the song got shelved and then Awake came out and then it was between Awake and Falling Into Infinity that it changed the season's came out and that's when the song finally got to be uh uh properly debuted so all of the all of the parts were written when kevin was still in the band mm. and so this was this was not a recording from the uh images and words sessions that got left on the cutting room floor they re-recorded it for this uh for this special recording Mm-hmm. So I, while I was talking about this just now, I did confirm that this was the first song that Mike Portnoy wrote. Oh wow! 
what a beast of a song to start. Yes. Wow. So the song is about the death of his mother when he mm-hmm. was a kid. And he said that uh, one day he was in class and learned about uh, Carpe Diem and Seize the Day and that he went home, gave his mom a hug, and she went on an airplane and the airplane crashed. Mm-hmm. And that was the last time he ever saw her. Yeah, I I saw a video of him talking about the the whole thing behind it and that he just like he had to write about it because that's, mm-hmm. that's something that changes you like you're in you're in class and your teacher's just like oh yeah you won't be here forever everybody you know you know you'll have a last time to see them so you know think about that and it's just and it's something that you kind of like say it's become a cliche that you kind of say in passing but it's good that he like he had that with his mother and he was just like, I love you, mom, you know? And they didn't end on, and they didn't end on a sad note. I think that's, that's something very fortunate. I think that's something that he obviously recognizes. I mean, he's, he's talking about it here. There are parts in this, in this song where it's like a dialogue between multiple people. There's one part in particular. And I thought it was like, I didn't know the meaning of the song at the time. So I thought it was like some, you know, marriage is not working out. It's like, I love you. Goodbye. You know, it's like, uh, go to hell or whatever. But it's like, there's a lot of, there's a lot more meaning when you really dig into it. And that's something that's, that's prevalent in every single one of the thing, things, songs that we're going to talk about. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty powerful, uh, it's a pretty powerful song. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's Carpe Diem is something that has has been in uh, a part of Mike's lyrics for quite mm-hmm. a while since. Mm-hmm. It, it's something that uh, continues, to, uh, continues to be to pop up in his writing. And Mike yeah, has it, said it... that he uh, that he always tends to write about real things that are going on in his life. I mean, look at the, look at the 12 step suite and um, the mirror, which is like the pre the, which is the prequel to the 12 step suite. You've got uh, the great debate, which is about stem cell research. And um, you've got stuff like a constant motion, which is about his own OCD tendencies. Mm -hmm. Uh, The best of times, the death of his father um, just let me yeah. breathe, which is about his struggles with the music industry. The only times that he hasn't written about real life experiences are the are the songs that he wrote for Scenes from Memory because it had to be about the narrative. Yeah, but you know, it wouldn't be surprising if he said, "Oh, it's it's because you know, it's I'm relating to this specific thing from my past." But that's just that's always what his strength as a as a writer has been, where the mm-hmm. other members are good at kind of telling fictitious stories or kind of just songs that are philosophical in nature. That's mm-hmm. what Mike was always good at was writing stuff that was grounded down in reality. Mm-hmm. And it's very artistic that he's able to make something sound so grandiose and philosophical 
and yet it's literally it's literally personal experience like yeah. that's not that's not something that you get often in in dream theater like a, a lot of times it's like oh yeah i'm gonna go like experience a past life and discover how i was murdered you know it's like you didn't do that but it's cool and so i thought you know because my first real introduction to their whole idea of of epics was um you know octavarium and scenes from a memory and not stuff that is necessarily real right and so when i was listening to this i'm like oh a change of seasons they're using a lot of stuff like november and like spring maybe they're just throwing around seasons and talking about the feelings of different seasons and like, wow, let's make up a story here that is unrelated to this story. But everything just fits together. And it's real. It's like real stuff. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so obviously, yeah, the, it was the, the change of seasons is his loss of innocence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it starts off with the line, I remember a time my frail virgin mind watched the crimson sunrise, sunrise imagined what it might find. Mm-hmm. And that first course, innocence caressing me, I never felt so young before. There mm-hmm. was so much life in me, uh, but those days are gone now, changed like a leaf on a tree. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, so you've got the We'll, we'll we'll briefly also walk through what the because this is subdivided into seven different right. sections. So we right. have the Crimson Sunrise, which is which is the instrumental. I guess you could call it the overture of the song. Um, you get a lot of uh, you get a lot of the you're going to hear. Big Theater was always really good at these. I would say of all the prog bands, they probably did it the best of introducing you to everything you're going to need to know while at the same time making it interesting and not too much of a like mixed grab bag of here's this and this and this it all flows very seamlessly Mm. and yeah so the the intro to uh a change of season with the crimson sunrise is uh i would say one of their best ever big epic opening instrumentals Mm -hmm. yeah and And then it establishes like the whole thing so well. And that opening guitar line just, it starts so small and gets so big throughout and the whole And it's so thing. ominous. Yeah. But in, in a weird way, it's, it's, it's not overbearing. I don't know. No. How it's, I don't know. How it's, Cause you're right. It is ominous, but it's not necessarily, um, frantic it's not it's not like panicking or any kind of ominous like oh we gotta run from the evil overlord kind of ominous i don't know it's weird you just have to listen to it guys go listen to the songs <laughs> anyway yeah and that spoken word section right after that little lyrical line works so well it's it's like the key that unlocks the meaning of the song and i didn't really know exactly what they were saying for the longest time because i mean i don't know where if that's from anything or if they wrote that or whatever but... it's from the it's from the movie dead poet society so there you go which, so it is from uh, it's uh it's that's 
that movie was very popular in uh, uh, popularizing the term seize the day. Okay. Carpet and carpe diem. Wow. So then there you go. But I mean, obviously, I didn't know that at the time because I just learned that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's still such a useful line. That's so weird that they didn't write that because it's, it like fits the whole thing. Because if you think about it, like when the seasons change, like the roses are going to die. Like, I mean, oh my God. That that movie in particular was a big inspiration for framing in this way. Wow. It's probably likely that the the whole idea of a change of scenes perhaps comes from inspiration from that movie and from that poem and that it's not something that he went back retroactively and found that, yeah yeah that makes sense it it feels believable that way it feels yeah so and so and so the section ends with him saying I have to uh I have to seize the day to home I returned, saying mm-hmm. that he's like, I'm going to go practice. Again, not realizing that this was going to be his one and only chance to get to, to put this in practice with his mother. Uh, preparing for her flight, I held with all my might, fearing my deepest fright. She walked into the night. She looked at by. Mm. And, and you have that you have that really haunting segment of the of the different in- coming through, and this this is uh, something that they themselves uh, rec- uh, recorded, I believe. I could oh, be so wrong. that's them speaking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then we get into uh, the darkest of winters, which is another instrumental section big instrumental part which has so many great moments you i love the little the little back and forth response where you've got that but uh, uh him doing a uh, three of the different instruments so you start off with him and bass and then you've got the one hit the guitar. And then the keyboard. It's, it's such a great... It's, it's there for the sake of doing it, but it's like the fact that it's thematically with each of the other instruments. And, and doing really, really weird, bizarre things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're they're able to they're able to fit that craziness for meaning. Yeah, like they're able to get and to that physicality, and it's useful. Yeah, we get to the what you could really say is of the song, uh, part five, another world. You've got some tense mm. coming through here. And mm-hmm. this is, I think this contains some of James Labrie's finest singing. Oh, yeah. This so whole this song, is, yeah. This is, this is kind of the aftermath of, of her death and uh, kind of him just trying out, how do I feel about this? How do I get through this? 
you know, I love the line, oh, him abuse and then ignore. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of like, you know, especially when, you know, being a young kid and your mother dying, like, kind of everyone is, like, looking to you in a, like, sadistic way to kind of, like, see and show how you're grieving. Just like, look at the poor child. He has mm-hmm. lost her. See, see him more. And he, like, just, he got so sick of it. I'm sick of all you hypocrites holding me at bay. I don't need your sympathy to get me through the day. So, yeah, that was there was definitely some some hidden anger in there. Yeah, that's 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 understandable though. I mean, when you have, I I I have a very close friend who went through a similar kind of loss. And he got sick of people who would act to him as if they were concerned. And mm-hmm. eventually, like, they got sick of him being so in such a grieving state. And he's just like, let, I don't care what you, how you grieve, just leave me alone kind of thing. Like mm-hmm. this is a this is a big deal to me. Stop acting like you're fake. If you're gonna be there for me, then be there for me the whole way. I don't know. And and so I I understand that line from a secondhand perspective. I'm fortunate to not have experienced something like that myself. And so when I first heard that line, I like connected it with it in a weird way. And Obviously, now knowing the meaning, it makes a lot more sense. So anyway, let me get another nice instrumental section, of course. Yes, part six, The Inevitable Summer. And this is this is where you can kind of feel at least the mood start to, to shift towards something more positive. Uh, all of the, definitely all of the angst and the, and the anger emotion releases in another world and then it starts to move towards the ultimate point of the song and it's the fact that the season changed and so has he Uh, let me get to part seven the crimson sunset it's i'm much wiser now a lifetime of memories run through my head he's saying now that i'm with my son kind of saying that he he didn't get the opportunity to seize the day with his mother, but now being a parent himself, he can seize the day every single day with his own children. And it's kind of, you know, he's, even though it was a traumatic experience, he's learned from it. He's learned the value of taking, not ever taking anything for granted, any moment of time for granted, and to mm. fully experience every moment, every day with the people that you love. Yeah. Yeah, it's and, and it goes back to that. And so the, the whole the point of the song is that even though he's going through this, uh huh, because the season just the season will stop. Everything it just goes back to where it began. Right. The seasons will always repeat. Right. <laughs> 
So this song has become one of the big classic, not just Dream Theater epics, but Dream Theater songs. This is in most top five greatest Dream Theater songs. Mm-hmm. And um, I th- I don't think it was last tour, but I think like the tour before they song out for the encore and like played it in its entirety. Wow. That would be it's, just, it's one of those songs that the fans love. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's about as classic dream theater as you can find. Yeah. And it's full of those crazy instrumental stuff that we can't really even take the time to talk about. And I wish, I really wish we could, but you guys are just going to have to go listen to the song. And it, it it keeps your attention till the end. It was one of the first Dream Theater epics I got into a hold of. It's a great way to start off the set. We're going to move on to our next song now that is definitely a scale back from intensity, definitely in time, but still, to most other bands' uh, estimations, an epic song. Yeah. And in my opinion, a, a really underrated song. I would say that as far as... Uh, kind of unloved songs. I think this is one of the most criminally underrated. And this blind faith. Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna be honest. In my great dream theater discography, listen through. I don't even remember this song. Like at all from that whole experience. I guess it was just like coming off of um, the glass prison, you know, because it's like the second song, right? Yeah. That I was just thinking about like, oh, wow, there were some really cool melodies in that song. And oh, this is the second song slump or whatever. And yeah, Glass Prison is a hard one to follow. It really is. But I mean, if you take this out of the context of being right behind one of the greatest Dream Theater songs, this really can stand on its own. And, you know, you mentioned that uh, we're stepping down in intensity. There's some still some really intense parts here. And that's not to say that it's like we're going all acoustic now type of drop down in intensity. There's still the ebb and flow of, of a epic that would go with any other band's epics. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Blind Faith. Is this a is this another Portnoy song? No, this is a Labrie. Oh wow. Not very often you get a Labrie written song. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so what is what is the meaning behind blind faith? If there's any nuances or stories behind it, well, I mean, it's a. Uh, I feel like it's pretty straightforward. Well, if uh, there's any like event in Labrie's life in particular, I don't know. <laughs> no, I think it's it's just it's a it's a fairly straightforward um kind of like crisis of faith song. Mm-hmm. And just about his own personal experiences with questioning religion and 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 all of that. Okay. So we're, we're not getting the the whole meaning of life type of thing here, but we are getting some some good music in its place. Yeah, he's 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 pretty much he's trying to he's trying to figure out. It's not even like giving a definitive um, 
like statement of this is what it is. This is kind of like just a a questioning of just like, you know, you know, should I believe? Should I not? I have these questions. What are the answers to these questions? Um, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's the very human um Uh, reaction to just you know how do we how do we how do we live this life of what seems like blind faith believing in something that you can't even see right and particularly i think it's interesting that he's he's kind of going with the perspective of you know this the whole idea of the modern christianity of the of the uh, the prosperity preachers and the name it claim it mm-hmm. uh you know that the line of you know um, I have it all the bigger house and an iron fence to keep you out kind of the hypocrisy <laughs> that behind religion and you know how in the end what everyone believes that they think is God is just the creation of man sorry you must excuse me I've painted my own Mona Lisa she's fixed everything now I'm spoiled beyond my wildest dreams oh man then you get that Nice course. Mm-hmm. Wow. And it's it's weird. The, the twists and turns that go here make that 10 minutes go by so fast. You start with such a weird, like, reverse string intro into this bass line. And then you have, you know, the nice, subtle, kind of acoustic-y, uh, funny keyboard line that's kind of nice and bouncy and low vocals. And then all of a sudden... Blind faith, you know, it's like wow, I didn't do yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it's a great, it's a great just punch. <laughs> yeah, I, I, man, though that that baseline though that starts everything is, I think that's one of Myung's best baselines. Yeah, I mean, you've got to be in tune with new strings to make that sound good. Like wow, because chords on a bass, oh my goodness. And it's it's executed so cleanly. I mean, keeping mm-hmm. rhythm on multiple strings on a bass—you could probably tell me—but it doesn't seem like it'd be very easy. So. No. And um, so we were—I was talking, singing the praises earlier in this episode about the album in general of Six Degrees Vinter Turbulence. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I like so much about this album is I think that this is probably. Mike Portnoy's best album as far as drumming goes. Mm. Particular this song songs for me to play on drum. You've got so many bizarre time signatures and just the way that everything like just twists on you without you expecting it. And yet it it feels like it feels natural, but at the same time, like it never comes in the place that I feel like it should, and I yeah. always mess it up when I play. Yeah, I I watched a video of him with, um, oh, I can't remember what the uh, Sons of Apollo or something made it might have been the band name, but it's also got um, Billy Sheehan and and a couple other uh, big name guys, and they all played um, uh, Dire of a Madman. Which, if you don't know, is in like 1916. 
you know, uh, the time signature, not the year, obviously. Yeah. And he made the whole thing like he looked so relaxed when he was playing that. And he put like fills that ran over the measure mark and stuff. And I'm like, how do you? He looks like he's just having a walk in the park and it's like, wow, like this guy is doing mind bendingly crazy drum stuff and he's looking like uh, just a normal, just a normal, you know, concert. He's just good at it. He's just so good at it. Yeah, he's so good at the at the weirdness because he's been doing it for so long. Yeah. Yeah, Blind Faith, man, that instrumental section is is one of my favorite instrumental sections of theirs. I think that it does so many cool, unique things. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't feel like any other Dream Theater instrumental section, and I find that those most mm-hmm. um, beyond. That's another reason why I love Beyond This Life. That's one of the most bizarre and wacky instrumental section that they've ever come up with, and yet that's what makes it so fun. That's so true, yeah. It's it's almost like it's like it's kind of bluesy sounding. Like when you've got that first little guitar line, like it's that's almost like classic rock like. Yeah, it is. Like you could you could hear that like maybe in an Aerosmith song. But yet at the same time you've got this the thing that makes a dream theory is you've got this weird time signature that's going underneath it. But then, like, all of a sudden, randomly out of the blue, you've got this beautiful piano interlude. Mm-hmm. Um, a a great, like, Yes-style organ solo. Yeah. Uh, it's just, again, I love Jordan Rudess's sound palette on Six Degrees and Scenes. I felt like he, he had a really diverse sounds of stuff that he, that he went to. Mm-hmm. That's true. And may like maybe part of that was he didn't know what he necessarily wanted for his sound, and now he's figured it out. But whatever the reason why, it it's weird to see how that. And we talked about this in our Queen episode how like the early stuff of an artist or the early iteration of like a band's lineup or something is some of the most experimental stuff because you're 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 just trying things yeah you're trying to figure out what sticks and and you're um you're still experimental because you still have that creative energy and you haven't really spent it on much of anything yet and so you have all these ideas that are floating around your head and you've got to get them out and it and it ends up turning to stuff like the instrumental section that we have here it ends up turning into something that sounds like nothing else ever. And it's great. It's really nice. The The time flies by, and that's the sign of a good song. I honestly, when listening to this song, like, I didn't, <laughs> did not believe that it was 10 minutes. Because it's like, oh, we got like a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, solo-ish section. We have another chorus here. It's like, that's every rock song and they're like three four minutes but here we are 10 minutes it flies by some crazy stuff is happening and you kind of you kind of it never overstays its welcome it's almost even short (laughs) it makes you want to listen to it again and it's just it's, it's good it's good stuff 
Yeah. Anyway, enough of that. We get to talk all about, um, unless you have anything more. No. We get to talk all about the uh, scene six in our scenes from a memory. Yeah, we get to home. go back to scenes. The, what I believe is the centerpiece of the album. Uh, yeah, it certainly, it, it's got a different tone from the previous song. I can't remember what the previous song was titled. I know it's, um, was it? Looking it's Through Her eyes. eyes. Through Her Eyes. There we or go. Yeah, I yeah, remember. Not it was Looking Through the, Eyes, just Through Her Eyes. It was one of the piano ones. And then right That's... after it is Dance from Eternity, which is a completely other different feel. Yeah. And here we have just like a heavy hitting. So this comes like right at the halfway point of the record. Yeah. Because really, the the album is split into two halves because all the way from regression to through her eyes, there's no break in music. Like everything segues nonstop up to that moment. And that's the only time that we get like, because there's a fade out to that song. And it's the only time up to that point that we get like a moment of silence. And that's when Home comes in with the... And that starts off the second half. And we don't get any... Yeah. From there until... Until the end. Everything else. Everything from that point on segues seamlessly. Right. And so it's... Yeah, this definitely marks... This is the beginning of the second half of the record. Everything kind of pivots on this song musically lyrically story-wise um this is also along with dance of eternity the song that most obviously borrows from metropolis part one mm-hmm. i mean there's there's so many and i continue to dis- to realize more of them as i uh as i listen to it but like you've got that that you know bum bum but um, but uh, where he's got the uh, mirroring the mm-hmm. you have you have that that drum beat the when he's uh, when he goes into that second verse and he's and he's playing that main Tom groove from Metropolis. Mm-hmm. You've got several uh, lyrical references. Um, Instead of Metropolis watches and thoughtfully smiles, Victoria watches and thoughtfully smiles. You've got mm-hmm. that uh, line of "I was, I remember I was told there's a new love that's born for each one that has died." Um, you've got on the um, the very first line, "The Lake of Fire," which uh, you know I was told. Uh, if you dream of the next world, you will find yourself swimming in a lake of fire. Ooh. And of course, you know, this is the this is the song of the album that name checks the name of the album. So you've got them saying scenes from memory, which also appears in Metropolis somewhere like a scene from a memory. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just there's so many this I would say this song more than any other, even more than Dance of Eternity. I would say this is what pulls the most from Metropolis Part One, but it does it in such a way. And of course, you've got that that moment at the end where it's where the, it actually samples that little intro with the with the bells and that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, there's there's a whole lot that, it, that it takes. It shows the talent 
of Portnoy as an arranger. Or, or, I was going to say arrangementer. Arranger. Uh, because it literally borrows exact melodies and parts and sections from Metropolis Part 1. And then it sticks a whole nother section right after that sounds nothing alike from the original. And yet, if you listen to this first, you would have thought that's the way that it would be played. It sounds so natural. It's so weird. Like, they're able to write modular parts to songs. Ah, oh, man. It's it's like a whole other ball game when you do stuff like this. Yeah. Um, I there's so many cool details in this too. Like one of the things I was like, when I, when I figured it out, it was kind of like one of those like brain exploding things, Mm -hmm. how um, there's a certain line in each of the three choruses that pulls that like ties together in the coolest way. You've got uh, the first line is uh, I can't keep away from its claws. The second chorus is I can't keep away from her touch. What happens when you blend those two words together? Claws and touch, you get clutch, which is what the third chorus ends with. I can't keep away from its clutch. Mm. And it's just like, there's things like that that's just like, that's such a smart way. Something that like is not necessarily like hinges the song on and something that most people are not going to notice. Mm-hmm. But when you do notice it, it's just like, what a what an incredible like, attention to detail yeah yeah and then of course it's the attention to all those details that turn something that is otherwise a boring 13 minutes into a 13 minutes that you can pick apart and talk about on a podcast at mm -hmm. you know 11 o'clock at night or you know 11 o'clock in the morning we could be recording at that time for all you guys know (laughs) yeah don't break the illusion uh (laughs) And then, of course, you've got the 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 story that's going on. So, um, I don't. I'm sure at this point you have studied the story of scenes from memory quite thoroughly. I have, and I don't know exactly what this. Like, obviously, I know how the story goes, but I can't remember exactly what this song puts to the story. So, pretty much, this is the this is the most amount of backstory in the whole album that we get to our kind of three principal characters uh, besides Nicholas, Nicholas being the main character, but then there's three characters that live in like the past part. So we, uh, we have got Victoria who we've been learning about, but we really get a lot of revealing information about the two brothers Mm -hmm. who actually are the namesakes of the miracle and the sleeper. Um, Mm. Julian is considered the the sleeper. He is the person that is the original love of Victoria and is the one that up to that point in the album is the one that is assumed to be her killer. Mm. Because whenever they find the the murder suicide that mm. they it's it's her body and Julian's body. Mm-hmm. And so the assumption up to that point is that he killed her and then killed himself. Mm-hmm. And that's what everyone assumes. Yes, this is this is the way that this crime happened. 
But obviously it isn't because that's why Victoria is constantly haunting her reincarnation, Nicholas. By the way, if you have not listened to our first Dream Theater episode, this is going to be really confusing. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, if I, uh, I don't try necessarily to go into the fine points of the story of Metropolis Part 2, mm-hmm. all I can say is either... Go listen to our first episode or listen to the album, look it up on online. It's it's a great story, but it is very confusing. It took me a long time to kind of really grasp the story, but I feel like I understand it pretty well now. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, Julian, and he's who we encounter in the first verse and chorus the first verse and chorus is from his perspective so he's someone that is racked with guilt someone that um is constantly wanting to be a better man but his his addictions and his um his compulsions prevent him from being such mm-hmm. and i think I think that there is a little bit of autobiographical because this is one of the ones that uh, Portnoy wrote. And mm-hmm. he was dealing, he was at the height of his alcoholism at this point in his life. So mm-hmm. there might have been a little bit of self confession in here. Because hmm. it was on the tour of uh, Scenes from Memory that he finally got sober. Uh, he said that okay. the, his last drink was on the on the last day of the tour. Mm-hmm. So, um, anyway, the so like the the lines take me higher. That's very likely uh, cocaine lines. Ah, uh, and so um, you know, living this charade is getting me nowhere. He's he's the whole thing that he can't get away from are his my demons are coming to drown me. He's not really concerned with Victoria at this point, except for the sense that he knows that she deserves a better man than him. His main thing is I have got to uh, I've got to get free of of all of these things or it's going to destroy me, mm-hmm. you know. And these are the things that are that are calling him back to his home. Mm -hmm. And so then the big, I guess you could say the big twist of the album is when we get to verse two. And up to this point, we have not met this character. This is a brand new character to the narrative, which is the brother Edward. And when it comes in with that really eerie line of, I remember the first time that she came to me. She poured out her soul. I remember I was told there's a new love that's born with each one that has died. Like, chilling. At this Mm -hmm. point now, something completely different is going on. This is when you really find out that that there's there's something more sinister going on. Mm -hmm. And so while... uh, while Julian is kind of in the throes of his addiction and his, uh, and trying to, you know, get his life put back together, he takes advantage 
and makes a play for Victoria. Mm-hmm. You know, takes advantage of of the fact that she cares much so much for Julian, but is kind of overwhelmed by his inability to escape his uh his addictions Mm -hmm. and so kind of like in a moment of weakness he kind of comforts her just like you know kind of pretending to be the the shoulder to cry and say there there i will take care of you i will be the one to uh to to you know be there for you when Mm -hmm. he can't Okay. Yes. Okay. I it's it's fitting together what each what each like part is, and then of course you have the long instrumental section. Like I would say, I would say the the big great moments, not just of that record, but in Dream Theater music, is that second chorus. I think that that's one of the most powerful moments of music that they've ever written. That whole uh, her ecstasy means so much to me, even deceiving my own blood. I mean, just it's it's huge. There's so much emotion packed behind that. Yeah, I think it's I think it's just brilliant. Well, well executed, well put together. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, and so, yeah, whenever, I guess you can get to one of the more controversial things to ever pop up in a, in a dream theater song with the, with the sound bites that happen during the, uh, during the, the instrumental section. Right. I, which I mean, when I was a, when I was younger, I was just like, oh, what, it, this is so scandalous. Mm-hmm. You know, they can't, they can't do that. Uh, apparently you've never listened to GNR. That's in a per- well, no. <laughs> um, but the whole point is that both of the brothers are at that moment in time indulging in their uh, in their craving because what you you hear in one ear a a sound of uh, of pleasure, and in the other sound you hear the sounds of a casino of someone betting on numbers, and so it's. Both brothers are are in their sin at that particular moment. Oh wow! Okay, that's kind of cool. So that's what that's supposed to mean. I thought that was like a baseball game. No. Okay. (laughs) It's 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 him at a at a betting table. Okay. Somewhere. I don't know why I thought that was a baseball game. It just sounded like it. Okay. Makes a lot more sense now. So, so while Julian's doing the betting, then Edward is doing the betting. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't mean to put that together, but that worked out really nicely. Yeah. <laughs> oh. And then, and then the final, the final, because we don't get a third verse, but we do get mm-hmm. a final chorus, and that's from the perspective of Nicholas, because he also has an obsession. His obsession is solving this mystery mm-hmm. and it's consuming his life to where he can't, he can't function anymore in his day-to-day life because he spends every waking moment obsessing, trying to find the answer 
and it's unraveling his life just in the same way that uh, Julian's obsession with drugs and gambling has undone his life. Edward's obsession with Victoria has undone his life. Nicholas's obsession with solving this mystery is undoing his life. Yeah. This is, this is probably one of the best examples as well of, of Rudess using different like sounds yeah, that little that little electric sitar that he puts oh, on the board. Man, yeah, and the whole like the whole first two minutes is just weird sounds. I mean, man, I don't I don't need to get carried away. I'm not going to get carried away. I'm going to cut myself off right here. We have <laughs> we have a very uh, a large amount of of Spotify files coming up. It's all <laughs> one song. The title song to Six Degrees of Inner Turbulence, that is. Yes. The next eight eight tracks on Spotify. So um, whenever I put this on our playlist, you didn't know that this was originally supposed to be one giant song. I, well, I had a feeling that it was, it was supposed to be kind of like played together. Because, I mean, obviously I, I would look at the track listings, you know, as I was listening through everything. So I've heard this before. And of course there's, a reprisal a, a by title um in this song so it's kind of like waiting for reprisal it, well it's not that well there's some pretty heavy parts in this song but <laughs> not not that part uh, and so i knew they kind of were supposed to be played together but i had no idea it was the title song and it was you that clued me into that about a week ago when we were kind of talking about this I'm like, oh, that makes sense. It's the title song to Six Degrees in Your Turbulence broken up so that the record label doesn't, you know, throw it out the window. <laughs> mm-hmm. But so do you have any idea what Six Degrees of Inner Turbulence means? So I have some thoughts. It sounds like fears of being a parent and worrying what could happen to your child. That's only one of them. Okay, so I got one of them. Okay. Uh, but even so, that's, that's, that's more of a symptom and not the, the root meaning. Uh, um, no. So, so six degrees of inner turbulence is six forms of mental illness. Oh. So there's, there's six people that they look at. Now, there's eight parts. One of them, obviously, is an instrumental overture, so that takes it out of seven. And then, of course, you've got the About to Crush, which is two parts about the same person. So you've got, so you've got six vignettes. They're not at all narratively linked together. This is not something that tells a story. Rather, it's six stories, and even then, it's not a story of plot progression. This happens, then this happens. They're more of, like, character studies. Okay, I, I got that part, at least. A day in the life of someone suffering with this. Okay. okay. So, um, the, uh, so, we, so we have the instrumental overture, which this is a, a true bona fide overture. I mean, yeah. with big orchestra and, and themes upon themes upon themes. Mm-hmm seven minutes of it as well and uh 
you know, the the question is, can you pick out what the main theme is? And I would say that the main theme is your um um ba da 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 ba da da ba da 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 that would the, be the first theme. Yeah. Well no first theme would be ba ba da 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 ba da da ba da 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 I mean, I guess, yeah, Those, it's different parts of that theme. It just, it makes you feel like you're about to go on an adventure. It, feel, it really feels like you're about to watch an opera. That's true, too. It like, is when very I, operatic. When I, when I put this on and, like, really listened to it for this episode, I was thinking, oh, my gosh, I feel like I'm in a concert hall. And I'm like... There's there's the pizzicato and the little woodwind section and ooh they're playing their little theme and here comes the timpanis you know it's like nice and like full orchestra kind of feel. Really I mean, cool. whenever other artists and even Dream Theater themselves term something as an overture, usually that's just like a, oh they're they're just making an approximation of this. I mean, this overture is a, like I said, a true overture in every sense of the word. Like, mm-hmm. you could you could probably hear this exactly as it was before an opera, and you would not think, oh, why are they, why are they doing rock and roll metal music before an opera? Like, this is, you know, this is true. Yeah. And, I mean, obviously, uh, it's, you've got the metal instruments. Yeah. But really, they take a back seat for the most part to the string accompaniment. Yeah. And the orchestral backing. That's the real star of, of this overture. So we, have a, so we have this overture, and then we get into About to Crash, which is really when kind of things officially begin. Mm-hmm. And you've, man, you've got that great piano intro. I've used that as a, as a wake-up alarm a couple times. It's a great way to wake up. Yeah. Um, so About to Crash contains our first character study. And the person that we're looking at is someone that has bipolar disorder. Mm. And so that, that term, About to Crash, is someone that is – that's that's someone that suffers from bipolar is – now, I'm going to throw out a little bit of a disclaimer here. I'm going to be talking about certain mental illnesses from a very rudimentary, like, you know, uh, Crash not, not from a sense of really understanding. So yeah. if I make any broad generalizations or inaccuracies and I offend someone that does or someone that knows someone that suffers from this illness, I apologize. That is not my intention. Because I know that this can kind of be a, a bit of a, uh, a sensitive subject. Mm. And the whole point of them writing Six Degrees, and, and they say it at the very end of this giant 42-minute suite, is that the whole reason why they're doing this is so we can learn to understand people that are dealing with these. They they try in, in these songs to humanize these people, to help us to understand what they're day-to-day life is and the struggles that they face every day so that we can be better equipped to understand them and to help them rather than to push them onto the fringes of society. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
So anyway, about to crash. It's this, uh, uh, it starts off on on a high. She can't stop pacing. She's never felt so alive. Her thoughts are racing set on overdrive. So she's in a bit of a, she's in the, a manic, you know, high up state to where she's just like, yes, I'm super into this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to work obsessively. And so, um, and then the, it, it does come in with a dad's perspective, which I can see why you're thinking that the overarching theme is parents worrying about their children. Yeah. But it's someone, uh, a father, knowing that when she gets in this phase that a crash is coming, that's what about to crash means. She's riding high right now, but at any moment, something can send it spiraling downward. Mm-hmm. So, and that's where the, the crash comes with she, and she tried every day with endless drive to make the grade. Then one day she woke up to find the perfect girl had lost her mind. Once barely taking a break, now she sleeps the days away. So it's not like a, it's not like a, there's an event that did it. No. That's the whole point. Yeah. It's, you know. Again, I'm not going to speak with any kind of accuracy, but from what I'm gathering from this is just that it can anything can trigger it. Hmm. But and so it it falls right back into a depression. But at the very end, she says, uh, "But in the face of misery, she found hopefulness. Feeling better, she had weathered this depression. Much to her advantage, she resumed her frantic pace." Wow. And that's kind of when the when the music starts to get more aggressive and when they get to that final section, kind of showing that what, what the first time that we see her in this manic working state, we are impressed with her. We're just like, yeah, she's a go-getter. She works hard. She's going to accomplish great things. That's why it's so, um, so upbeat and so happy sounding. And then we see the depressed the depression follow. And then once we see her rising back again into a manic state, now we understand that there's a pattern and that this is going to constantly end in tragedy and catastrophe. Hmm. Hmm. Like, wow. That it's making sense now. It's making, so riddle me this. Oh, very wise one about the ways of dream theater. Most of these have little Roman numerals ahead of them, but both about to crash and the reprisal don't. Was that just to like break up the monotony or? No, I think that that's a Spotify error. Because when I originally had this on on my iPod, uh, iPod, I'm so old. um, It had the Roman numerals on it. This, I think that whoever put this on Spotify just messed up and they haven't Aww. fixed it. Interesting. Okay. Well, there you it's, go. That, that is, that's, that's just straight up incorrect. That's, that's been on my mind for quite a while now. So I'm so sorry that I don't have this really deep philosophical answer. for you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It, it all amounts to a clerical error. That's funny. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we got the, we got the about to crash character study. 
And then okay, so on. now that you have a now that you have a perspective on what this is really about, what do you think that war inside my head is about? Um, I'm I'm, I'm feeling like like it's some kind of anxiety, or perhaps like. Hmm. I don't want to go so far as to say schizophrenia. I'm not going to go that far. I think that's the next one. I don't know. It is PTSD. Oh, that makes way more sense. Oh, wow. That's that's such a good... Oh, that's such a good use of the word war. Because it's like, dude, mm-hmm. duh. And it's specifically painting the portrait of a uh of a veteran that is uh that has left the war but the war hasn't left him Ooh, ooh, and it's and it's very obvious that the specific war that they're talking about is vietnam napalm showers showed the cowards we weren't there to mess around a free vacation of palm trees and shrapnel trading innocence for psychotic hell I mean that's that's that was pretty much Vietnam exactly. That is see, I thought they were just using some nice like war terms to describe what was happening. But like they are, but it's actually it did happen. Mm-hmm. There's layers. Whoa, that is cool. That is cool. Wow. Okay, okay. I'm getting it now. Yeah, you're, we're starting to pick up. We're understanding the rhythm and the language. Yes, yes. This is this is some big brain stuff. Mm-hmm. We're, we're getting to octavarium levels of word usage. Wow. And then the whole hearing voices from miles away. Mm-hmm. That made have that might have put me off onto like. He's hearing voices. Oh, it must be like schizophrenia. But it's like he's hearing voices. He's reliving. He's he's like reliving, reliving those the... moments. Okay, so it's literally like so it's the war inside his head because it's literally the war is happening in his head. He can't get away from it. That's so ah! That's so good. That's so good. Wow. See what I mean? Like my appreciation cannot go up, but I can learn so much more. This is awesome. <laughs> this is awesome. Wow. It's hard to be disappointed by a band like Dream Theater. So anyway, we get we get two minutes of war and some great, like, harsh James Labrie vocals. And then suddenly we get no we inexplicable get, reasons. We get spiraled down into what sounds like hell. Yeah. Wow, and some of the lyrics here, and I'll, I mean, you can walk through them because I don't know if I know the particulars, but are pretty grim. Yeah. For the test that stumped them all. So this is another one that made me think that it was like worrying about a parent because it's like, oh, what if, what if my child goes insane and they have to be institutionalized? You know? Mm-hmm. Because they're taught, it's like the, and I don't know what disease it should be, but it's like these clinicians are talking to, I say clinicians, that might be the wrong term. 
doctors, we'll say doctors, physicians, are talking to, like, the guardian of the person who has been institutionalized. Like, hey, you know, he might need this type of treatment or whatever. The boy's just simply crazy. Yeah. Suffering from delusions. We honestly think that maybe he might need an institution. Right. Yeah. They use the term boy, so I'm like, ah, I don't know. So what is, what are they highlighting here? You you were right. It's schizophrenia. It is schizophrenia. Okay. Which, of course, in the music is is mirrored by the the frenetic, almost random, constantly changing, and of, and of course, like like in the doctor segments, and you've got the, uh, you've got the little like insane sounds, the really can you somehow like kind of like meant to just sound like demented and weird and crazy. I I love that section so much. Like modern modern prog is takes itself too seriously to do something like that. <laughs> yeah. It's like that is so random. That's something you'd hear in 70s prog. And they make it like they make it fit, but also at face value it's like quirky and fun in a weird way i don't know it's like wow it's just it's just mind-blowing the stuff that 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 they can pull off in songs like this mm-hmm. and it, obviously it's only for like you know 30 seconds or something but it really sends it's like one of those details that sends something that's 42 minutes over the top into something that you are gonna pay attention to the whole time so anyway wow yeah, and so, uh, so yeah, the verses are from the uh, from the perspective of the person that is uh, mm-hmm. uh, suffering from this, and so the test that stumped them all is the is is alluding to the fact that nobody knows the cause, the inciting incident, or the cure for schizophrenia. It's it's one of those mental illnesses that is continues to be the test that stumps uh, medical professionals. They 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 have ideas of what they think might cure it. They have ideas of what might cause it. They don't know if it's genetic, if there's if it's you know something to do with environmental. They don't know why people will for the first twenty to twenty five years of their life be completely normal, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, these these. Uh, symptoms appear and there's so many different forms of schizophrenia that it's just it's it is the test that stumped them all hmm that's like oh man random urine testing pills Mm -hmm. red pink and blue counseling and therapy providing not a clue Still, they keep me between these hollow walls, hoping to find in me the answers to the tests that stump them all. Wow. Yeah, and I mean, like, the the frantic music, I guess, highlights the frantic experience of having the disease, I guess. I don't, I don't know what it's like, but I would guess that that may be the, the goal of, of the music. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it just if you were to just ask a random person, what does this sound like? They would probably say, this sounds very schizophrenic. Yeah. Yeah. And not and not realize that they 
just gave a lot of insight. Yeah. That that was like, yeah, that's the point. That's that's exactly the point. You hit the nail what, on the head. That's yeah. what they were going for. <laughs> and and like the diversity here. I mean, we just had two really intense metal-y sections where they just like they prove that they deserve to be progressive metal. And then we slow way, way down. And it flows so well into our fifth section, Goodnight Kiss. Yes. This is another one where I, I, I understood why you thought parent. Yeah. Yeah. Because so th- th- uh, this is a postpartum depression. Mm. that makes and it starts off so pretty so you know you've got the I believe that that was uh, that was John Petrucci's own daughter that provided the sound clips for the the kid playing at the beginning Uh, that's kind of nice and then yeah just that beautiful goodnight kiss in your nightgown and you know you're just thinking oh this is going to be nice and then it takes that weird turn are you lonely without mommy's love mm. and it's just like oh oh crap okay this is not what i thought this was going to be mhm it, it yeah, turns so- turns real creepy real quick yeah and then you have like just this weird like instrumental section as well like you have these lines that are like are you lonely without mommy's love and it's like well you just spent time with your kid like i hope she's not because you were talking to each other 30 seconds ago so the whole the whole thing around this is that the the story with this particular person is that they had had a previous pregnancy that they lost and Mm. they are so because uh, postpartum depression is a pretty real thing that happens mm-hmm. De- despite any kind of previous uh, mental state like it's not something where certain people are predispositioned for it mm-hmm. it can happen to anyone and there's a lot of weird emotions that and you know I'm my wife didn't ever suffer from this but there are there's a certain extent every mother goes through a bit of a postpartum state. The problem is, is whether you hold on to it in unhealthy ways. And so Mm -hmm. in this instance, there was a previous pregnancy that the mother had lost that she hasn't let go of. And now that she has this new baby, she's not able to love that baby enough because she's still hanging on to the child that she didn't have it's Mm. been five years to the day and my tainted blood's still the same i can't help acting this way and those bastard doctors are gonna pay that makes sense and so and that's why she's saying i'm so lonely without baby's love she's not talking about the baby that's in front of her she's talking about the baby that she lost and that's why when it gets into that guitar solo section and all the sound effects, it's her reliving that moment of when they tried to save her baby and she couldn't. They couldn't. 
And in her mind, she doesn't know, is it, was it my fault? Was there some weird, was there some defect in me? Was it the doctors? Did they not do enough? Whatever it is, I cannot move on from it. Is the gist of of the story, and you have this weird juxtaposition between happy music and unhappy things happening. Mm-hmm. Because again, there is there is to a certain extent a happiness with the new child. Yeah. But then at the same time, it's it's constantly there's it's almost like there's any time there's this moment of happiness, this dark shadow kind of emerges to overtake it. Mm. It sneaks up, it sneaks up on you. Boy, that is this is like this is really heavy. It is. This is a what really, else did you expect? This is really well from a song titled Goodnight Kiss. It starts with a sound clip like that, where it's just like, Good night, mama. You know, it's like, ah, nice children going to sleep. Oh, nice. Oh, no. Now here's a woman screaming in a hospital room as the yeah. doctors. Mm-hmm. And it's. It's pretty nifty how they sneak in that main theme. Yeah, that when the guitar solo there, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, it's that's a great use of it. It's it's weird because it just comes out of nowhere. It's not like, oh, let's play the main theme now, guys. It's just in the middle of the guitar solo. It just it sig you so that little thing to remind you that you're listening to a giant forty two minute song. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Interconnected. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, and then we ha- and then we have the the really creepy sound clips. Anyway, then we move Six. on to solitary shell. Solitary shell. So our, aka Salisbury Hill Part Two. What? Well, just because musically it's and they've acknowledged oh. that. That Peter Gabriel and Salisbury Hill in particular was a, they were, they were paying homage to it. I noticed that because it sounded like it was in seven, eight or four or something. Yeah, and the the guitar, the the rhythm that is being strummed, it's very very similar. And it's like happiness now somehow at the beginning, like all of these, not all of these, but some of these start really happy. And this one, sudden... I would say this one stays happy because the whole point of this one is that this is someone suffering from a mental illness, but not something that's like, like life destroying. Okay. So what are we, what are we talking about? We're dealing with autism. Yeah, I so, guess it's not life destroying. Yeah. No, there are plenty of people, very successful people that uh, have had autism that have gone on to become some of the most powerful and influential people in history. It's mm-hmm. it's reported that uh, Mozart was autistic, Steve Jobs, um, Jerry Seinfeld, um, lots of lots of people that because people that are autistic are very very intelligent people and they have a very unique way of looking at the world and understanding it, but 
it also comes with particularly social and verbal um, handicaps. And so that's what this that's what Solitary Shell is talking about is the fact that he seemed no different from the rest. He was just an ordinary boy. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. And it's just like he he had social problems. Mm-hmm. And I guess he, he took he took to his poetry or yeah what it, yeah. As a boy, he was considered somewhat odd, kept to himself most of the time. He would daydream in and out of his own world, but in every other way, he was fine. Yeah. Just someone that, that would uh, that would retreat into, uh, into, into himself. Hmm. That's just... That's very different from... PTSD and schizophrenia and postpartum depression and we have something that's not really even I don't want to I don't I don't want to say not that bad I don't want to put it like that but like we have something that's that's not life altering and I that is so weird because like the music does not get dark but in a way isn't it kind of like I don't know. It's like they were they're talking about he he goes in and out of insanity and how he has like problems with other people and it's like is not that part of like the the I feel like we've suddenly turned into a psychology show. I know. <laughs> That's so weird. But is is that not like part of the I don't know how to put this badness yeah i mean obviously there are there are things to overcome but the thing about with autism is that it is something that you can learn to live with and and in a way you can almost turn into a strength if you can learn how to to manage it to deal with it and overcome it Hmm. okay because again it it does come with the advantage of you people with autism have a a very unique and uh an innovative way at looking at the world and they tend to be some of the most ingenious people because they see things and they go well why haven't we ever done it this way and they're like "Uh, oh we've never thought of it that way before yeah that's true wow yeah okay so yeah I mean, again, I and I think it was also good because at this point things have been very heavy in multiple different ways. To have yeah. a segment like this that is much easier, topic-wise and music-wise, it's it comes as a nice refresher at this part of the of the suite. So anyway, then we get a reprisal, the about to crash reprisal. So is this technically the sixth degree, or are we not quite there? No, because we're returning back to the same person that we looked at in About to Crash. So it's not a new person. Okay. Um, this is uh, this is her back again on an intense high. Uh, I'm alive again, the darkness far behind me. I'm invincible, despair will never find me. Wow. Okay. 
Okay. Okay. So it's just, do you think they like, was this, was there a thematic reason for this or was it just like, ah, callback for the sake of callback? I think that, um, I think that it helps. It's a necessary bridge to get us from something like solitary shell to our big grand ending. I mean, it's called the, the ending is called the grand finale. <laughs> it's called grand finale. Yeah. I they, think, I think they, that it's helpful as well as just, again, bipolar is one of the trickiest ones to talk about. I think that it gives them an opportunity to kind of jam a little bit. There's, there's really, it's mostly an instrumental section. Like you've got a little bit of vocals in it's, it's more meant to kind of be an instrumental interlude. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And so I, th I think you could have even gotten away with, you know, maybe not having any lyrics there and just having like, have it be the about to crash reprise, but just make it instrumental. I'm not saying that they shouldn't have put vocals in, but that's, that's, you can really see that that's what the purpose of it is. Mm -hmm. It's, it's to help get the music where it needs to be by the finale, because things are still too calm and easygoing to have the emotional weight of the last movement. I am, I'm so glad we talked about the meaning of this song because I always thought that about to crash was like about doing drugs. Cause it's like, ah, even though I get so high, it's like, uh, we know what you're <laughs> talking about, but no dream theater is a little bit more intellectual than that. Okay. Anyway, losing time we are losing time we still have more songs to talk about after this so we do let's let's make some headway let's just not even talk about the reprisal any longer we're losing time and the grand finale all put together in this nice little six minute package so what are we talking about here in losing time we're talking about someone with multiple personality disorder oh um wow she doesn't recall yesterday. Faces seem twisted and strange. She always wakes up always only to find she's been miles away. Oh. So she don't have... This is another one that made me think it was like worrying about your kid because it's like, ah, oh, if your kid is dead, then you're going to wear black all the time because you're like grieving. <laughs> if your kid is dead, you're going to wear black all the time. I don't know. Well okay. said. I'm not the best at picking apart <laughs> songs. Okay, for the past three months, I've been picking apart songs like "Return of the Giant Hogweed." Okay, so it's not like I'm looking at the most intellectual stuff. I'm kind of been out of it for a while. So, anyway, that that was my best guess. Once again, I'm glad we're going through the meaning of these things. Okay. Anyway, sorry not to not to cut you off there. Yeah. So. Uh... Yeah, it's, it's, you know, the whole idea is that every time that she uh, switches to a different personality, she's losing time because she doesn't remember where she's been or what she's done. She, she changes the way that she looks. She, uh, you know, she's, she's mm. constantly, as the song says, learning to, uh, learning to retreat within herself. 
wanting to escape, she had created a way to survive. She learned to detach from herself a behavior that kept her alive. Mm. And so, and then right at that point, that's when it switches to the grand finale, when it goes right back to um, uh, the, I guess you could call the main theme. Mm-hmm. So now it it gets into the uh, into the the main message of why have we just told six stories about people with different me- mental illnesses? Uh, hope in the face of our human distress helps us to understand the turbulence deep inside that takes hold of our lives. Shame and disgrace over mental unrest keeps us from saving those we love. The grace within our hearts and the sorrow within our souls. Then we get a great Octavarium moment. Remember how we talked about um, uh, how one of the sections in Octavarium gives a recap of every song previously in the album? Oh, don't tell me. Yes, we're going to get a recap of all six degrees right here. We've we've got Deception of Fame, which is Schizophrenia, Vengeance of War, PTSD, lives torn apart, postpartum, losing oneself, losing time, spiraling down, about to crash, feeling the walls closing in, solitary shell. I know, it's glorious every time we find one of these. Oh my gosh. I had a feeling that's what it was, but I didn't know how it connected. Oh, that's so cool. And, oh my gosh. And then yeah, and then there's our big ending, which also if you know anything about uh Dream Theater, you know that there's a series of albums that end on one thing and then start the album with the next thing. So, um, Scenes from Memory ends with the static of the record, and Six Degrees starts with the static of the glass prison. Uh, Six Degrees ends with this long keyboard fade out and ends with that same keyboard fading back in for As I Am on Train of Thought. Train of Thought ends with a solitary low keyboard thud is the same note that opens The Root of All Evil on Octavarium. And then, then Oct- Octavarium closes the circle by going back to the beginning of its own record and closing the loop. Because Mike realized, Mike Portnoy realized that he created a pattern that he was never going to be able to escape, where everyone now is going to expect every album. He's just like, it's going to restrict us songwriting wise because we have to start a record a specific way. And so he was just like, oh, but if on Octavarium we've got this theme of things ending where we began, let's just end it where it began, and then I don't have to do this whole thing anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Which, by the way, do you know where he got the idea for that from? The wall. No, he got it from uh, Women and Children First. Because that guitar line at the end of In a Simple Rhyme, he expected the next album to open with that guitar line, and he didn't, and it disappointed him. Oh, okay. He was hoping that that would be the 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 song that would open the next album. Hmm. Well, then there you go. Write the music you want to hear, I guess. Mm-hmm. 
It worked out because man, that was a that was a journey. Yes, it that was. was a, and we're not even done. No. Wow. But at the same time, it's. I feel like where we go from here, it it feels logical. It feels logical. Yeah. So so we have that nice long long Dio length fade out. It's it's just about it's about <laughs> two minutes worth of fade out. Yeah. Wow. And. We get to a, uh, I don't want to say a lightweight, but for Dream Theater, it's a lightweight. It's only 13 minutes, right? Yeah, after after 42 minutes, 13 <laughs> minutes seems like a, a pop single. Right, so this is this is kind of the unfortunate um, sequel to A Change of Seasons. Mm-hmm. Something I, I never put together until I started doing this episode. It's kind of like... Fits so well, like in this set, because this is also kind of where it shows. Uh, this, oh, this is exactly where it shows up on the album, because "Black Clouds and Silver Linings" is a six-song um, album, and of course, the previous song was "Shattered Fortress," which ended the whole twelve-step suite. So now we have this big ending. We got to go somewhere, right? So we open up after that long fade out with some waves and birds and some piano. And just some picking of a clock, soothing instrumentals and stuff. So, and this song stays relatively happy because, and I guess we'll get into that. But it was it's about the best of times. Mm-hmm. It's a very different experience of Mike losing his father than his mother. Mm-hmm. The good thing. I mean, obviously, it was not good that he lost both of his parents. But the good thing about it was that he had time to say goodbye to his father. Because right. it was not a sudden death that he didn't see coming. He had been battling cancer for about, I think, like a year. Mm-hmm. And, um, but yeah, like, that was not something I intended to do. I knew what both of those songs were about. But I unconsciously put them together on the same list. And mm-hmm. when you know it, it was Harry that pointed it out. And he was just like, wow. "We, you did a song about his mom and his dad. And I was like, well, gosh darn, I did. Yep. Yep. I, I And I saw this on the, or I should say, I saw this album cover as I was scrolling through accidentally. And I'm like, oh, this is the next segment. I shouldn't look at which songs they are. And I saw the album cover. I'm like, ooh, that is such a heavy Portnoy record that i wonder if we're doing a portnoy episode and obviously you know we're not we're doing an epics episode which is great because there's a lot of or there's a particular song that we wouldn't be able to talk about hey he only wrote two songs on that album yeah i mean like uh it was it's this and he was a major influence in the count of tuscany lyrically if i recall I don't believe so. Well, he, t- he talked about this the story of the Count of Tuscany. That's John. No, that's John Petrucci. That was John. That, that was Petrucci. Yeah, that happened to Petrucci. Oh. Well, there we go. Once again, you learn something every mm-hmm. every time. But yeah, anyway. So this one's all that to say. This is the sequel to um, Change of Seasons, and he even references it too in some of the some of the lyrics. Yeah, well. remember seize the day. Remember seize the day, and 
this is this is such a a first of fifth kind of song where you have that theme kind of show up in a very uh in a very like humble way and then mm-hmm. you have the rest of the song you have the nice show everything that we're talking about and then you start this huge instrumental where it's just the theme like over and over and over again and just expounding upon it and expounding upon it and it's like this huge solo section and every repetition you're just like man my god so that good. guitar solo yeah wow that might be his best guitar solo ever Ooh. Hmm. There, it's, it's got some others to contend with i'm it not does. saying it is the best but it could be i mean it's got to go up against the spirit carries on and under Octavarium. a glass moon that final solo of octavarium is like mine yeah that <laughs> one um I'd say the solo, uh, man, the solo from Stream of Consciousness. Mm. That's just a beast of a song. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah, it the is. whole guitar part to Stream of Consciousness. Wow. Yeah, but anyway, we got the we got the happy major prog here. In yeah. Essence. Also, don't you just love that? that nasty insane line that comes out of the the silence when it's when the song like truly kicks in oh where the guitar comes in and yeah. it's just like it's just like how do you My, the first thing that i thought when i cuz i remember i was listening to this when the album first came out and this was my this got this is my first time getting to like like hear a new dream theater record mm-hmm. and then my first thought was it's spirit of the radio that was the first thing that came to my mind. Wow. No, I can I can hear it. And then the first thing I thought of when I heard uh, Kind of Tuscany was that's Jacob's Ladder when it did the bow bow down bow 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 down bow bow and I was just I was just like, man, they're really pulling on their rush influence for this album. I mean, they they will go on and on about it about that rush influence. And mm-hmm. that makes sense as to why we both are kind of obsessive about both bands. Yeah. They're like the... Yeah. They're the spiritual successors to Rush. They're the logical conclusion. They're the logical... I wouldn't even say conclusion. I would say next step. I think there's still there's still more to go. We just have well, to find it. I would say Between the Buried and Me then has been the next step after that. Ooh. Plugging our Between the Buried and Me episode. Yeah, go check that out. Shameless plug right there. <laughs> um... I also noticed that um, there was there's another intentional callback to a change of seasons. The fact that we have another form of "I'll always remember" in change of seasons, "I'll always remember the chill of November." It's meant to be this this negative look back of looking back on the worst day of my life. But mm-hmm. in this time, he says, "I'll always remember those were the best of times." I think it just shows how much his perspective has changed on death and life and spending time with those that you love. Yeah. He doesn't he doesn't really have regrets. Of course he, you know, he he talks about um, you know, in the that, you know, all the things that I should have done but time just slipped away. He's more just saying I was just like more of like a could you could I have done better? Absolutely. Do I regret 
the time that I spent with my father, no. Mm-hmm. Because he, him and his father were very close. I don't remember if I had said this previous episode, but he's the one that gave Dream Theater their name. Wow. He was the one that, because their original name was Majesty, and then they mm-hmm. got copyrighted by another band saying, that's our name, you can't use it. And Dream Theater was the name of a cinema in the town that uh, Portnoy grew up in. And so his dad was just like, we used to go to that all the time. Why don't you just call it Dream Theater? He was like, hey, that's that's a pretty cool name. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. And he was just like, his his dad was like, you know, one of their biggest fans. Like, he was definitely a a proud father. He wasn't one of those, oh, my son got into rock and roll and destroyed his life. Like, I mean, he, he says it right in the song, and when we weren't together, the hours on the phone. Yeah. This was not a, you know, yeah, I guess my dad was pretty cool. Like, it was, it was real. That's nice. And this, this was a true um, love letter to him. In fact, the original version of this song has Mark, Mark Portnoy singing vocal on it. Oh. And the demo, that's the demo version of it when they originally were writing it. And... Mike said that he had a hard time considering the fact that he was going to eventually have to hand it off to James to sing. And I actually think that one of the missed opportunities is not releasing a version with Mike singing it. Because oh, they didn't release it. Well, no, they they do. I like that that that's not the album version. Oh, okay, okay. I was going to go listen to it. I was like... No, you can't. You can you can find it. I've listened to it. It's I think it's actually it's the it's the thing that makes the song better and I think it's the thing that had they done it this would have been probably a top 10 dream theater song. Mm-hmm. Because the emotion is so palpable and so real. He said that um he whenever his dad died it was still in this demo version but that he played it to him on his deathbed. Wow. And that they like cried together and that um they played it at his funeral. Wow. So, yeah, it's. I used to not like this song. Uh-huh. I used to think it was kind of lame and corny, but I appreciated it. Oh, yeah, that guitar solo is pretty great, though. And I found that the older I've gotten, and I've specifically found that once I became a dad, that this song, like, started to hit me in a much different way. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, the thing, I was just like, it's so corny, you know, saying, you know, your spirit's with me, yeah, blah, 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 blah. I realized now that was, that was such a jerk for thinking that about someone that's very honestly and, and candidly pouring out his emotions about his dying mm-hmm. father. Mm-hmm. But it's, I, it's really because I had never really gone any, through anything like that. And not to say that I have now, both, both of my parents are still alive and healthy today but i feel like i now understand from the perspective of through my son about how it's like if whenever i'm gone is he gonna think this about me is he gonna look back on the times that we had together and say that those were the best of times i sure hope so wow maybe 
Maybe that's something to chew on for our Lucas Christman solo album. Yeah. Man. So now, with that kind of all that now running through my head, when I listen to this, this about makes me cry every time I hear it. See, I always, I always got the lyrical part. And I never really understood, like, why the music was so happy. Because it's like, yeah, it's the best of times, but, like, someone like died <laughs> you know why why is the why is the music so happy but i guess like there's no regrets mm-hmm. there's no regrets about it like you enjoyed your time together and you can look back on it in a very happy way and that's why the music is so happy because it's like i will always remember the time we had and cherish it and look back on it fondly not as something that i've lost but as something that i've experienced my heart is looking bad but i'll be be okay yeah so and i mean it's easy to like kind of look past this song because there's a lot of other really great epics on this record it's not it's not the most complex song it doesn't have the time signature stuff but it's It's very straightforward it's honest so and good God, that guitar solo. Frick, <laughs> man. Yeah. It's got melody. It's got technicality. It's, it's got everything that you need in, in a legendary guitar solo, really. John Petrucci, you, you demon. <laughs> and, it just, it. and it fades out in that nice moment. And then we get to... Uh, a very different feel than we've had for the entire set so far. And partly because we've got Mangini on this one now. Yes, we're, we're finally moving into the end game of this set, the Illumination Theory. I am going to be honest. I have some ideas. I don't think any of them are correct, given six degrees of inner turbulence and that whole fiasco that I didn't understand anything. So I'm just not even going to try to guess the meaning. I feel like this is pretty easy. I feel like you can what? it's it's all it's all about the this is this is philosophical in nature. This isn't telling right. a story. It's not mm-hmm. pretty much the whole point about it is is the nature behind what's the reason that you live. What do you live for? What do you die for? What do you kill for? I I thought it was like I thought it was a little I thought it was more than that, to be honest. I mean, I will say that one of the one of the downsides to modern dream theater is that the the lyrics have lost a little bit of its uh, its ambiguity and and deepness. It's a it's a bit more like uh, traditional, like philosophical. We, we're not ex- minus the astonishing where we got a freaking double album's worth of story. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> We're we're not really getting you know our dark eternal night of a you know a story of a mummy coming and terrorizing a town or even the personal stories like uh, I went to this castle the Count of Tuscany trapped me in his castle and I thought I was going to die. It's very much kind of it's almost kind of become a bit like buzzwords of proggy intellectual sounding words. Yeah, I mean, look at the title, Illumination Theory. Yeah. But I think that of the times that they've gone into this, I think that this is very well executed. 
it's not in the sense of like six degrees where you're just like oh my god it's so many levels like (laughs) the lyrics are going to tell you exactly what it's trying to convey okay i thought it was like illumination like knowledge like light bulb in your head like we seek to understand and then it's like oh i don't understand it and then i don't know i think the whole it's it's pretty much a it's a it's their take on the meaning of life because ultimately the meaning of life boils down to those three things what do you live for what do you die for what do you kill for that's i'd say that's pretty true i mean and, you know you wouldn't you wouldn't die for something you don't believe in mhm so anyway and so but i would say we get to we get to really get metal. Yeah. Oh my gosh. They flex their muscles in so many different ways. That whole opening section is like heavy and prog and just like when Labrie comes in, it's like a complete, like his voice sounds, his voice has some longevity, I would say. Like yeah. maybe he has to do more takes than he used to, but. It sounds like the same guy who sang on Images and Words in just this weird way. But he's got this weird, like, tenacity to it. It's weird, like, like raspy, driven, evil tone to his voice. It's so weird. It just feels new and different and like we are in another world than we were. Another world where nothing's true. And just, yeah, I love it. Yeah, um, I in particular once we get to uh, part four, the pursuit of truth, when he goes to the mothers for their children, husbands mm-hmm. for their wives, that's about as as throat shredding of a moment as he's ever laid down to tape. Right next oh to my. trapped inside the Soctavarium. Wow, I I can sing the first part of this song, and that's really fun to sing. But when he gets to the mothers for their children, oh, uh-uh. <laughs> Which essentially he's saying these are all the, uh, all the, the things that uh, people would live, die, and kill for: mothers for their children, husbands for their wives, martyrs for the kingdom, fighting for your life, soldier for his country, a junkie for the high, teachers for their students, vengeance for a crime. Rebels for their freedom, a tyrant for the praise, cowards for salvation, money, love, and fame. Wow. And, yeah, the cool thing is is that you, you, you can answer all three of those things for all of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. And so... Uh, and but but before that, you've got this. You've got a, one of the more beautiful moments put to tape by Dream Theater. That that whole like kind of ambient, very Pink Floyd esque uh, section with the with the orchestra. Oh yeah, that. I don't even know how many minutes that is. Maybe honestly, like three. But that is such. That is so beautiful. They are showing off. <laughs> big time with their composition ability mm-hmm. because it's like i mean classical composers if you're listening 
maybe it's trivial, but to me, that seems like something you could pick apart for days and weeks. I still don't understand how could they come up with something like that. I mean, this is such a dark first section. That whole we seek to understand course, that is like heavy, like sludgy metal type of feeling. And then you get to this nice, beautiful orchestra where you can just, you can picture the time lapse of the flowers blooming and the morning mist and ah, walking in the sunshine. As well as that great recapitulation of the opening theme. Oh my gosh, yeah, good point. Right, right after in that instrumental section as well, but it goes back to that main riff, and you have the the keyboard yeah section. with the solos. I did not understand that the first few times I listened to it, and then when it played, I'm like, "That was such a weird tempo change." Oh wait a minute, That's it the feels riff. familiar because it is, <laughs> and it's so it's so brilliant what they're able to do. Mm-hmm. And then when it all comes back around together, mm-hmm. the Pachucci said in that he was trying to capture the in music form the moment of standing atop of a mountain triumphant. Wow! He wanted he wanted a he wanted a true mountaintop moment, and I would say that they uh, they accomplished that. It's one of the more epic moments they've ever put to tape. Gives. I would say that it uh, it does Octavarium proud because that's always going to be what if they're going to ever write anything like this again, it's all Octavarium's always going to be what it's measured up against. Right. It's not fair, but it's it's just it's just reality. Right. I mean, that whole ending. Goodness, goodness gracious! Oh my! I listen to it. And I'm like, wow, this is. I don't, it's like, it's so cliche chords, but oh my And cliche lyrics, but yet somehow it's, it's because they sell it. They sell the emotion. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, and and it it helps that they put the little details in there, like the little suspensions and the little fills here and this and that and the other. And he's like, when you really feel, or to really feel the joy in life. Oh, oh my gosh. The effects on his voice are perfect. You mm-hmm. really do feel like you're on top of a mountain. You feel he, like you're floating in space. When he says you'll you'll never know that you're alive, it oh. just... Oof. I'm getting chills just thinking about it right now. That, that exact... Yeah, that exact moment just, like, gives me chills every single time. Like... I listened to specifically this song so many times preparing for this episode because I was just like, every time I got to the end, I was like, oh my goodness. I needed something that, because I mean, if you're going to do an episode of epics, the last epic has to be worth all of the previous songs. It has to be a worthy capstone to everything that has happened. It's the it's it's the the risk you run when you do an episode like this, because if you're going to get to the end and you can't deliver on over an hour's worth of music. Mm -hmm. 
that's why, you know, I'm really glad that in the Led Zeppelin one, I hadn't used Stairway to Heaven yet, because it's probably the only one that could have lived up to that amount of music. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cygnus X1 for Rush. Yeah. You know, you just, you had to have something that was going to to justify and satisfy all the amount of time that you just put into. But in my opinion, that does so much, but the real great release, the morsel, is that little hidden part at the end. Oh, yeah, the hidden track? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. See, so I didn't put it together the first time listening to it that hidden tracks existed at this time. And so I was like, oh, this is a neat little tidbit here to kind of tie back the whole song. But now knowing that, like, oh, that's a hidden track, that is such a brilliant use mm-hmm. of the hidden track because it feels connected to the song and it lets you, like, sit in the emotion of what you just listened to in silence for a little bit. And then after a minute, it comes back in and it's like, hey, remember that cool instrumental part in the middle of the song with the strings? Here's that same emotion again. Now sit in that. And then you're like, oh my gosh, how do I write a song like that? Man, that's what, at least that's what I thought. I remember the first, I remember the first time I listened to this record. I, I did what they all want you to do with a hidden track, which is I didn't look at the time thing. I just kept it on just thinking that the album would start over because I was like, I'll listen to it again Mm -hmm. and get a second take on it. And then all of a sudden that came on and I was just like, wait, did it like, did it accidentally go to another album? And I looked and I was just like, no, this is still the song. It's a little bonus part. Wow. I personally, I don't like it when most people do hidden tracks Mm -hmm. because usually the hidden track is not, uh, is not good. (laughs) To put it bluntly, it's they usually like do some kind of like joke. I mean, just look at the other uh songs from our worst songs that do hidden tracks where it's like they make you wait for literally like eight or nine minutes and then they just have like a sound effect at the end. Yeah, Aztec two step. Yep, that's exactly what I was thinking. Sad blasted skin. Uh huh. Where it's just like, why, why did I wait for this? It was a real big problem in the '90s, because once you got all that extra space on the CD that you didn't have before, then people would there would be people that would put like 15 to 20 minutes of silence on a song. Like you would have songs, ending songs on albums that would be like 30 minutes long. And originally, I'm putting on just like, oh my gosh, this normal band has a 30-minute song, and then I find out it's actually four minutes, and then 20 minutes of silence, and then two minutes of, like, something really stupid. Yeah, I mean, by that time, like, your listener is out the door and at Walmart to get their weekly groceries. Like, they're not going to hear it at that point. (laughs) Yeah, this, this silence is only, like, 40, 45 seconds yeah, and so it, it it gives you that pause, but you haven't walked away yet, and it's just like, oh, man. So nice. It's so brilliant, and I don't think that that actual music shows up anywhere in the song. No. It's I, in the same key, 
and it fits thematically it's just so brilliant yeah it was it was something that jordan rudess just came up with and he showed it to john and he he vibed with it on him and they were like what if we put this at the end of the album he's like yeah actually that'd feel pretty good good decision yeah i agree good decision wow. and in my opinion i think that that's the that's the sweet moment that ties the whole thing together because i it's something that I think it's the I think it's the great reward. Like, yes, you've got that great victorious mountaintop moment at the end, but I think that that's kind of like the thing that, like, that in a way, soothes your soul after such a long journey. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of that in a lot of dream theater. I mean, to call back to our first song, we have that big finale of changing seasons where it's like the call back to the beginning. And then you have that nice guitar line at the end, you know, mm-hmm. but here we have, we have really the, the epilogue to our entire two hour set, right? We have our three minute epilogue to the two hour deal. And I mean, this, I, maybe I'm only saying this because I like the music, but I think that set building wise, this is one of our best sets of the podcast i mean it just flows it just flows from song to song i could tell you really like slaved over some of these transitions yeah this was a really hard when i when i decided fully i'm going to commit to epics i went through a lot of different uh iterations one of the biggest ones being Am I really going to be that bold as to put six degrees on here? <laughs> but then I thought, if I'm going to do an album of or an, an episode of epics, and I'm not going to talk about the big epic, then what am I even doing here? I, I have to go full epic. Well, it was a it was a fully epic set. Well, thank you. I <laughs> I did work hard on it. All right. All right. So we're going to take another break here, and when we come back, we're going to give our final thoughts about Dream Theater. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone, to the Good Music Podcast. We have just finished talking about Dream Theater, specifically talking about their epic songs. Just as a recap, those songs that we talked about were A Change of Seasons, Blind Faith, Home, Six Degrees of Inner Turbulence, The Best of Times, and Illumination Theory. Remember, the way that you can go listen to these songs is there's a link in the description of the episode that takes you to a Spotify playlist where we have all the songs, not just from this episode, but all of our previous episodes as well. So make sure you go check those out. It would be a shame if you listen to this entire episode, you didn't even go listen to them. Even if you know these songs, even if you're a, a diehard Dream Theater fan, I would still recommend you go listen to them in the order that they're in because you might just get a brand new experience out of it. So now it is time to talk about our final thoughts. So, I mean, pretty much we're both sitting at about as high of a ranking as you can get for a band, but... Yeah. Um, what what has changed since uh, since we've talked about these songs? Well, really, really, kind of everything to the nth degree. 
it's been a long time since I've uh, really listened to new dream theater, like new to me dream theater uh, from like an analytical perspective. So it was really, really cool to get that new experience of picking apart lyrics that I didn't understand before. Um, for example, in Six Degrees of Inner Turbulence, I mean, there was so much there that I just did not understand. And so when I got it, I was like, oh, that's so cool. And, and I, I kind of lost that in my getting obsessed with them. And, you know, in the, in the recent, like, months and weeks and whatever, it's been fun kind of uh, listening to a whole lot of Genesis and stuff like that. But you don't get the layers upon layers of lyrical mastery with anybody else but Dream Theater sometimes, you know. So that was, that was really cool. And then, of course, just, you know, being exposed to stuff that I didn't really, I never really honed in on. I mean, Six Degrees of Inner Turbulence was one of those albums that, as I was listening through, I think part of me was just like, wow, Scenes from a Memory was so great. And there's this album. And, oh, hey, Train of Thought is coming up. I know that's a good one. And so I really, I don't think I gave Six Degrees the time of day. I kind of want to go listen to that. I'm noticing there's some holes in my... Well, chronology of dream theater discography wise like i have a pretty good sampling of every era but there are just some albums that have completely slipped through the cracks and i remember listening to them and i remember thinking certain things about them but i just i've never gone back to listen to them again so i don't know what what the next step is maybe i just need to listen to their albums that i don't remember and kind of challenge myself to listen to new things from an old band. Oh. Maybe I maybe I want to uh, pay attention to that ranked playlist, or I don't know. I'll give you three unsung Dream Theater records from three different eras. Awake, is I, one. Awake is one yeah. of them. Yes, that is a record that it doesn't immediately grab you, but it's one that the more you listen to it, the more it reveals itself to you. Mm -hmm. uh, Six Degrees, in my opinion, is the ultimate sleeper dream theater. In fact, again, I'll say that it's their second best record overall, next to scenes. It's from a just even putting together the ranked playlist, like not a single one of, I mean, there is six songs, so the average usually is going to be in its favor, but all six of those songs are within the top 40. And that is a from a band with a discography that has an incredibly high quality and competitive song catalog. So to say that an entire album gets into the top 40, for them, that's a huge thing. And I would say that yeah. four out of those six are in the top 25. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, it's a, <laughs> I, I, just, I just think that it's a dime, there's, there, I would say there's not a weak moment on that whole album. Wow. Okay. And and then uh, and then I would say a dramatic turn of events has also become a bit of an a big time underrated. Like if you want to get a great Mangini record, I mean, I do. You know, man, the the astonishing. I'll always defend it, but it's also kind of become very. Uh, it's become quite iconic in of itself for being so polarizing. Mm -hmm. But uh, a dramatic turn of events I've found is uh, kind of gets lost because P 
people just see it as, oh, it's the first one without Porkboy. But man, that's that's got some incredible stuff in it. And that's one that if you've only listened to it a couple times, you you should go and because there's there's some there's some really cool stuff on that album. Well, well, cool. Then I'll I'll probably check those out. Also, I would highly recommend falling into infinity. It's I would say a third of it is bad, but the the two thirds of it that aren't bad aren't just okay. They're really good. I kind of want to listen to the to the original version before. Yeah, you can the... you can find that on YouTube. Uh, I've done it before. It's a fascinating listen. There's a couple of songs that dramatically get improved, and I'll actually talk about one of those when we talk about our bad music. Oh, okay. interesting interesting yeah so it's just it's such a weird position that i've never well i've I've been in very few times on the podcast where it's like a artist that i have known and loved for quite a while now and i'm still learning more and i think that's okay because my appreciation has been confirmed like i've 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 confirmed that their ranking in my personal you know ranking of artists is well deserved yeah Um, like it's not it wasn't a snap decision yeah this this revisit was just so much so much fun to just nerd out for like three hours now so (laughs) yeah and and i don't it's gonna be really hard to pick a favorite change of seasons is like a special song to me because it was one of the first songs that I got into Dream Theater with. Six Degrees had some amazing, amazing lyrical themes. And I thought that was such a genius way to talk about such a complicated subject using such complicated music. But yeah, Illumination Theory has the best moments. It's It's hard to argue with all of the great decisions that were made musically in Illumination Theory, that one's got to be my favorite. It just gave, it gave me the most emotion. And even though the lyrics are like cliched or whatever, cookie cutter lyrics, I think they go all in on everything and it turns in, it, it loops around and turns into something that's quite amazing. And it's, that's his, that's part of the Mangini era, which I never really spent a lot of time in. So that was a nice, a nice gem to find as well. So yeah, I can't move up from a 10. That's kind of how 10 works on a <laughs> 1 to 10 scale. Uh, but they're still a 10, so at least they didn't go down. But anyway. Maybe maybe the 10 has been a bit more cemented in concrete. It Yes, yes. And my my final thought of my final thought is that please listen to these songs. Obviously, I say that having, you know, talked about how this band is one of my favorite bands. But there's so many things in all of these songs that we just don't have time to talk about. And maybe the maybe the musician in you or the analytical thinker in you or whatever um, it is will love the little the little details in these songs that we just couldn't get to. It's really sad, but it's stuff for you guys to find. So anyway, that's my that's my final thought. All right. Um, before I give my final thought, just because I already have it pulled up and counted i'm going to talk about where the songs from the last episode land on the ranked playlist just again to show proof that 
this is an insanely strong category because <laughs> we've got uh, uh two, and that's a wow. Yeah, it is. Uh, as, as I am is at thirty-seven. Oh my gosh, that's an amazing stuff. Oh my gosh, uh, Blind Faith at number twenty-four. Illumination Theory at 15. The Best of Times at 13. Uh, Beyond This Life at 10. Uh, Home at 7. Metropolis Part 1 at 6. Change of Seasons at 4. The Spirit Carries On at 3. Six Degrees at 2. And Octavarium at 1. I was wondering which of the epics was going to make it to the one position, but it's a tough guess, race between those two. I guess you can't you can't really argue with the uh, with the career trend setting song. Yeah, Octavarium is is truly something special. Yeah, and so they're, unique in the way that it's put together, and they're known by it, and the way that the album just supports it. Ah, man great anyway so um now for my i just i had was already figuring that out so it's like if i don't say it now i'm gonna forget i'm gonna have to count again <laughs> um so for me dream theater has obviously always been super important to me yet there's always been a part of me that's been hesitant to put them like in an official top five it's it's why i've you know i've they're a band that I would say that I've now at least I'm not going to continue to say this could this band could be a potential fifth spot. I now can say that there's an official tie for fifth place. Ooh, to have a a a two toned fifth pillar, and one of them is Dream Theater because what? the the other what? one is the Beatles. Ah, okay, that makes sense. They're the two bands I find that get me the most excited of all, of all non-pillar bands. And so for me, Dream Theater is just, I've, I've kind of almost been embarrassed by it because most people around me throughout my life don't like Dream Theater and kind of have always, you know, given me flack about liking them. Saying, oh, the oh, the singer sucks. Oh, their songs are too long. Oh, it's so complicated. Oh, blah, 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 blah. And it's made me a bit self-conscious about, like, being very vocal about just, like, yeah, heck yeah, I love Dream Theater, and they're one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. There was something that dawned on me throughout the process of getting through this, researching this episode, all the fun that I had, all the joy that I had listening to the songs, the the way that I find that they – are a big influence in the way that I think about and arrange and and play music. Uh, it's just, it's undeniable that they have to be a pillar in some way. And so I think that they're going to, them and the Beatles are going to officially be enshrined as the fifth pillar. Ooh. I just, like, but just the thing is that if you had to tell me you have to pick one of these two, it's just like, I don't know. It's It's so equal. This is kind of a historic moment. It is. I, it's always been the four pillars, and now there oh, is officially a fifth pillar. I think I've just 
and this the biggest thing is it made me realize how much of an influence they are on me and that I can't deny it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I understood fully for the first time how much they have impacted me. Yeah. Cause I mean there there were periods in my life where I was like almost unhealthily obsessed with them. <laughs> I mean that's how every that's how every good band is. Yeah. And so it's you know, they are not just a band that I really have liked throughout the years. So, and that's what, that's what should constitute a pillar is those bands that you have those obsessive periods in your life where you just want only that music. And when they start to be a major factor in the way that you write, arrange and play music. Yeah. So congratulations, Dream Theater. You've made it <laughs> onto my, onto my, my building of music. The, the, the temple of... It all comes back to the Beatles. Oh Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't care that that's also kind of cliche. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, oh, it's the greatest band. Of course, you're going to say, oh, it's just, yeah, I love their music. It's not about what they did as a, it's about what, how they make me feel. Yeah. That's fair. That's so, fair. my favorite song. Who? Um, Home hits in a particularly powerful way for me it's kind of always been one of my top contenders off of scenes to me the only thing that can best it is the spirit carries on mm. mm -hmm. um but home is always one of my most is one of my favorite moments of that album but i have to say that i think the best of times is really creeping up as one of my favorite dream theater songs Ooh. Again, with that with that new perspective of being a dad myself and just being in a in a very different place in life, coming back to that song, I feel like I it has grown the most stature because I remember when I this was one of the very first ranked playlists that I'd ever made. Like I made it like six or seven years ago before I even had the idea to do a podcast. It was just something I did for fun. Mm -hmm. And I remember in that original ranking, Best of Times didn't even crack the top fifty. Wow. Um, and now for it to be almost a top 10, I think that that just shows how much I've been growing to love it more and more. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think on that basis, I'm going to pick the best of times. And that is also Harry's favorite as well. My four-year-old son. Oh, my, my wife is reminding me that he just, he did just turn five. I have to I have to start calling my I have to start calling him my five year old son and that's really weird to think about. <laughs> that is I, I I mean like even for me because I remember when I first met you he was like two it was just mm -hmm. it was just Harry and the other two hadn't come along yet. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, he he turned five on New Year's Eve, and wow. now we can we can already say that this year he's going to be six and that's that's doubly weird. <laughs> Yeah, wow. So, yeah, his favorite was The Best of Times because he likes that it's a song about uh, dads. Yeah, that's a and good opinion. he did the most me thing that he's ever done, which is he played that song on his iPad and went to 
my wife and said, you've got to listen to this great Dream Theater song. Listen to this part. And I was just like, ah, uh, he's just like me. Oh, boy. And Callie said, I, I hate that there's two of you. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, he, Harry loves Dream Theater. Whenever we were listening to it in the car, he just, he got so into it. He loves the fact that they have really long songs, and he writes his own little songs and just like, you know how long this song is? It's a hundred minutes, way bigger than than their 42-minute song. Oh, boy. Yeah. So I'm glad that I've, I'm glad that I've turned him into a fan. That is good. So uh, I think that's everything that we have to talk about. Thank you for listening to this I already know incredibly long episode, but again, how else can we start the new year than with a big monolithic episode? Yeah, it's and we're gonna follow it up by our one of our shorter ones, not because we have less interesting things to say, but just because it's the type of band that we're gonna be talking about. It's not a band with long, uh, twenty-six minute songs deep with philosophy and 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 musical insanity we're going to be going back to the 50s which is a a time period that we've only talked about twice in the history of the podcast so far so that that's going to be pretty exciting so make sure you stay tuned for that next week we have new episodes every monday at midnight so make sure you hit the subscribe button on whatever platform that you're listening on and um, make sure that you check out both links uh, in the description of the episode. One of them takes you to that Spotify playlist. The other one takes you to our Patreon, which will give you access to uh, episodes early as well as uh, getting to listen to our bonus segment, The Bad Music Podcast. We're going to talk about the six worst Dream Theater songs. And if you thought I was passionate talking about they're good songs. Wait till you hear oh, me no. talk about their bad ones. Oh no. I have strong opinions. I do too, and I don't know why you have the opinions you do, but anyway. It's gonna be it's it's gonna be kind of a uh, a smackdown head to head matchup, I guess. Oh yeah. I'm I'm <laughs> curious to see what your your opinions are. So, um you'll definitely want to check that out because we had a lot of fun doing our tournament last week. And we definitely are going to do that at the end of this year as well. So um, this is going to, whatever wins here is going to be our first contestant in, in this year's end of year bad music tournament. So we're getting, we're getting our first uh, entries in and that's exciting to think that, Oh, we're going to do this again. Mm -hmm. So make sure you check out that. And then also hit us up on Instagram and Facebook. It is the best way to uh, let us know what episodes that you would like for us to do. If you noticed a couple of weeks ago on Instagram, I put a bunch of polls up. And that's also a way for me to just kind of get a good snapshot of what, what's, what are some things you guys would rather hear. I wanted to have like a big more, a bigger like selection, but it only let me pick two. So I was just like, okay. I'll pick two things that I'm sure that most people will want to hear, and I'll just figure out what they want to hear more. 
So I'll also be using those as as fan selected episodes because technically y'all did vote for them. And that's it. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. Keep on listening to good music.